Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. On March 22, 1999, in the small lake town of Elephant Butte, New Mexico, 22-year-old Cynthia Vigil is naked and covered in blood. She's running down Bass Road with a metal choker collar padlocked around her neck. She has no idea where she is or how she got there. She's scared half to death and desperate to find help before her captors catch up with her. She runs inside a mobile home with an open front door and shocks the hell out of the owner who calls the police after Cynthia bolts the door behind her. The police arrive and listen as Cynthia tells them a crazy, almost impossible to believe story. She tells them that a man and a woman had kidnapped her and had been holding her as a sex slave for three days of continual rape and torture. She says she was whipped, cut with various medical type instruments, given electric shocks, and tortured with a variety of other homemade sexual instruments. She has bruises, burns, puncture wounds covering her body uh, to back up her outrageous claims. She tells police she met her captors in Albuquerque, working as a prostitute, and that the man had offered her $20 in exchange for oral sex, and that they then went into an RV where a woman snuck up on her, helped subdue her, and placed a metal collar around her neck. They drove Cynthia to an unknown location, put her in a specially constructed trailer, a hellish little room nicknamed the Toy Box, where she was chained to a post. And then a short time later, she heard the tape. An audio tape started playing where a man's voice described all of the horrible shit that he and the woman who had taken her were about to do to her. Picture Jigsaw from the Saw movies. Would you like to play a game? Except she hadn't done anything Jigsaw found unacceptable, and there would be no possibility of escape offered to her. And all the violence was going to be sexual. On the tape, David Parker Ray, the toy box killer, explained to Cynthia that she was now his sex slave and she was to refer to him only as master and the woman with him as mistress. And she would do their bidding or else. She would be tortured, raped by David, by the woman, possibly by others, by his dog. She'd be subjected to anal penetration with large dildos and other objects. And if she didn't cooperate, she'd get her throat slit, supposedly like many others had had happened to them before her. 
She was in the clutches of a sadist whose crimes and alleged evil deeds are so over the top they don't even seem real. Today's episode is not for the kiddies. I'm sure you've gathered that already. I hope you have. But as bad as this episode seems already, it's, it's going to be worse. I literally became nauseous at points researching this one. First time that's happened to me. Thought for a second I might actually throw up. He is such an evil, evil, despicable fuck. You probably figured that out when I mentioned the dog rape. This shit is crazy. We journeyed to a small, sleepy, lakeside New Mexico town today. The last place you'd expect to uncover the kind of evil we're going to explore on this maybe you should check in on your neighbors a little more often. Bad shit can happen anywhere, at any time, to anyone edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Friday, Time Suckers. It is bonus time, bitches. I'm Dan Cummins, a.k.a. the Master Sucker, and you are listening to Time Suck. Working weight, it is time for Time Suck. Welcome to the cult of the curious. Strap in. Today's ride is going to be bumpy. Hail Lucifina, her presence is strong today. Uh, thank you for the continued ratings, new time suckers. Ratings and reviews are spreading the suck like nothing else. Might not seem like uh, much to you when you when you throw a rating on there. It just takes a, takes a moment, but it means a lot to me. Uh, it means a lot to the show. So appreciate it greatly when you leave those ratings and reviews. Uh, appreciate those of you, I haven't mentioned it in probably months, who are continuing uh, on the website to uh, click that Amazon button too to do your Amazon shopping. Every bit helps, man. And uh, thanks for your gifts and your artwork. Sent into the Suck Dungeon each week. Uh, so much talent. All sent into P.O. Box 3891, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, 83816. We put that in the episode description. Uh, also in the episode description, link for the uh, new Pandora station behind the bit with uh, Chad Daniels and myself talking about our favorite bits, how we thought of them, what we like about one another's works. A big jerk-off sesh between Chad and I. Uh, I hear people enjoy it. Uh, the Flat Earth Tour in Orlando right now, as in today, as in uh, tonight. So get to the improv. It's in tomorrow night, July 12th, uh, 13th, 14th, the Orlando Improv live podcast Sunday the 15th. I had to record this a little earlier based on ticket sales. I I think it's sold out already. Uh, You can check. Hopefully there's a few tickets left. Comedy Store in La Jolla, California, July 20th through 22nd. Dayton, Ohio, Funny Bone, July 27th through 28th. Side Splitters in Tampa, August 2nd through the 5th. First time in that club. uh, Been in that city many times. Palm Beach Improv, 10th through the 12th. Zanies in Chicago. 15th through the 18th, Denver Comedy Works, 23rd through the 25th. A lot of touring, a lot. Uh, I'll be doing another live time suck on Sunday the 26th. More tour dates, some more live podcasts coming up. Portland, Oregon, Denver, Colorado, Tacoma, Washington, Spokane, Washington, Tampa, again, Palm Beach, said those, uh, Hollywood, Huntington Beach, so many more. DanCummins.tv. Now, let's explore a tale that will make you glad, so very glad you have never met David Parker Ray or any of his associates Let's dig into a tale that's going to make you think twice about talking to strangers because uh, sometimes strangers are, are much more than strange. They are uh, downright evil. Let's suck a man who, uh, who forced others to suck him way too often, a man who never deserves to be sucked. In that sense, David Parker Ray, the, uh, the piece of shit, the, the pile of human trash, the waste of oxygen known as the uh, toy box killer. I decided to do this suck last minute. Last Friday night, uh, my wife, Lindsay, Kyler, Monroe, my kids, uh, we'd all gone on a bike ride the other evening. You know, we, uh, we'd all gone uh, that evening, sorry, to, uh, to go watch a movie and grab some dinner. And then suddenly it became clear to me. Suddenly I, I realized that I had to kill him. I had to kill them all, whole family. It's the only way. It's always been the only way. And, uh, and now I'm free. Now that's, <laughs> no, that, 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 that did not happen. That's not what I thought. 
Uh, it's not what I thought at all. No, we went and saw Ocean's 8. The kids love the Ocean movies. Uh, and it was, I would say, what you expect from that franchise, formulaic, but I enjoy the formula. Stylized heist flicks. You know, it's fun. After the movie, as the sun set, we rode our bikes to a nice little restaurant here in CDA called Seasons. One of the few places in town still serving decent food after 9 p.m. That is the one complaint, the main one I have about uh, Coeur d'Alene. Man, nothing is open after 9. Uh, like, like, fucking, it feels like three places are open. Anyway, we had a nice little meal. Headed home around 10 p.m. A little late for the kids to be out. You know, the sun is set, but hey, you know, it's summer break. And to avoid any downtown drunks on a Friday night, we took a little bike ride. Uh, uh, or took a little bike trail, excuse me. That cut through a, a quiet street. Two blocks behind Sherman Ave, uh, the main kind of east-west drag through town. Super dark. There was no one else besides us. And, uh, you know, but it's only 10 p.m., so a good good chunk of light still on in most of the houses. And I just started wondering, seeing all those lights in the darkness, like, what goes on in those houses? What goes on at night in those houses? You know, it's strange how we truly don't know the private lives of the people around us. I've read so many stories over the course of my life about the worst things imaginable going on in little houses, just like the ones I was cruising by. Now I know even things that I hadn't thought of can go on in those little houses. Little houses where no one suspected a thing was going on until the police showed up and they read about it in the papers just like everybody else. I know so little about my neighbors. I don't know don't know many of them. I, don't, I know I don't like Chuck, the idiot who lives uh, behind me, who's been unsuccessfully trying to sell his house for about a year now after I screamed at him, screamed at him one night over some nonsense involving a porch light. I know Jim and Barb next door, kind of. They seem nice. We went out to dinner once. They, uh, they collect our mail when we're out of town. They're retired. Used to work as insurance agents, some kind of thing. Maybe claims adjusters. I don't know. Something. Pat across the street was a PE teacher, and his wife, Marie, uh, was a real estate agent until she she passed away in their house a few months ago. It's a slow gas leak. Seriously. Almost killed uh, Pat as well. Oh, man. The guy is, poor guy is now a shadow of his former self. He seems lost. I usually only hear him screaming his dog now and then, slam some car doors. Uh, I was coming home working uh, from working at the Suck Dungeon when I saw the ambulances and police cruisers around his house. Koo, the elderly woman next door, just moved uh, to a home for seniors with dementia. Her daughter Susan's selling the house this summer. Who knows who will get? Hopefully no one like David Parker Ray. But those sick fucks have to live somewhere, don't they? Another guy across the street was a judge of some kind before retiring. He has dementia too, I've heard. He seems to recognize me some days, others not so much. Neighbors directly across the street came uh, from somewhere in Tennessee, I think. They have Tennessee plates when they, or they had them when they showed up. Uh, two other neighbors whose backyards touch mine have large families. They homeschool. I only know that because the kids play out in the yards all day throughout the year. A lot of kids. Out of both families, I only know one person's name, a uh, son in one of the families, maybe, maybe I don't know, 17 years old or so. Used to mow Koo's yard, helped me cut a tree down once uh, through brief conversation. I learned his family is very religious, like, like the churches aren't doing it right, so we formed our own church to do it the way God intended, uh, cult-esque religious. So that's fun. Uh, we have not exactly had them over. Uh, not that they would want to come over. And that's all I know. And, and now you know my neighbors just as well as I do, truly. Uh, I don't even know what a lot of them look like. And, and I know more about my neighbors now than I did when I lived in Los Angeles. I didn't know the names of most of the people who lived in the same apartment building as me. I, I only remember that kid Levi's name because there was a kid in Riggins, Idaho, where I grew up for a few years. Uh, well, sorry, he was there for a few years. I, I spent many years there. But for a few years, there was this kid named Levi there. I played with him one summer after my parents had divorced in Anchorage, Alaska. My mom, sister, Don, and I moved back to Riggins. Uh, we were probably like nine, ten years old, and uh, and I remember his dad beat him uh, bad. I used to hear him scream next door. I asked my mom one day to call the police, and if I remember right, she said that they knew about it already and to stay out of it. I have no idea what happened to that kid after they left. Uh, one memory in particular of hearing him scream still haunts me a little bit today. 
Uh, you know, Levi only lived a few blocks from some woman who dated my Uncle Sig when he died. Dated another man, last name of Allen, when he died. And she was arrested for parole violation when I was in college. Turned out 30 years earlier, she'd uh, beaten both of her kids to death with a hammer. Somewhere in Texas. Cut them up in a bathtub, put them in a trash sack, and uh, convinced the neighbor kid to bury their remains in the yard, claiming it was spoiled deer meat. And, uh, yeah, and then she served about 30 years in prison. Uh, nobody in Riggins saw that coming. Little old lady with a yippy dog being a child killer. No one ever sees that coming. The point is, most of us have no fucking idea what's going on in our own towns and in our own neighborhoods. How scary is that? I asked Lindsay on the bike ride home what she thought was going on in the little houses I was looking at, and she said someone was probably being abused in one of them. Maybe someone was being cut up in another, and uh, I think I, I told her, quote, to get the fuck out of here. That doesn't happen here. And yes, I swear in front of my kids. And then Kyler cited some stat he'd read about, about uh, how many murderers you're likely to meet or pass by or some shit in your life. Some nonsensical, unprovable stat, but I think it was like 36. And then Lindsay told me I was a fool if I didn't think all the horrible stuff I researched couldn't happen here. And she's right. You know, uh, and one of the people in the homes we strolled by could be the next David Parker Ray. Yeah, there's a, there's a little dock we uh, fish off of sometimes when we drop our stand-up paddle boards in. It's four blocks from my front door, and, a, and a, about a year ago, I think, some woman backed her car into that water with her two young kids and drowned all three of them. Three tragic deaths right where I take my kids to the lake, right in this idyllic little, quiet little dock, you know? For whatever reason, it barely made the papers, but it fucking happened. Dark shit happens all the time. We never want to think... The evil is around the corner from us. It's always somewhere else, right? Well, I'm sure that's what the people in Elephant Butte, New Mexico thought, uh, you know, before the cartoonishly evil David Parker Ray, a.k.a. the Toy Box Killer, was apprehended in 1999. No way it could happen here. Sure, you know, there's weird stuff that goes on from time to time, but not that crazy. But it did. It always does. Our somewhere else is always someone else is here. So Elephant Butte, where even is that? I had never heard of that. Uh, it's a town of about 1,300 people, roughly 125 miles north of El Paso and uh, in the Mexican border on Interstate 25, named because a nearby Butte, uh, a little island in this reservoir, uh, resembles a giant or a giant elephant laying on its side, apparently. I, I don't see it, but whatever. The name was given and the name stuck. Elephant Butte's about 200 miles west of America's butthole, Roswell, New Mexico. Call back to an episode from a long time ago, new listener. Roswell will uh, forever be forever be America's butthole now in the time zone. Uh, it gets hot as hell in the summer. The record is 112 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, and also because it's high desert, it can get pretty cold. It can get down to zero and, and even a few degrees below zero Fahrenheit in the winter. It's only five miles north of a town of about 6,000 people named after a 1950s game show. Seriously. Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Formerly known as Hot Springs, New Mexico. In March of 1950, Ralph Edwards, host of the radio quiz show Truth or Consequences, announced that he would air the program on its 10th anniversary from the first town that renamed itself after the show. Hot Springs won the honor, officially changed its name on March 31st, 1950, and then the program broadcast from uh, now uh, Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, the following evening, April 1st. How weird is that? Personally, I would be embarrassed to have my hometown named after a fucking game show. Ah. I just I would hate to like just have talk to people about that. Where, where are you? Where are you from? Uh, Prices Right, Idaho. I'm sorry. What did you just say? You heard me. I'm from Prices Right, Idaho. Uh, why do people live in the high desert town of Elephant Butte? Well, uh, there there was a dam on the Rio Grande or Grand Rio Grande. There we go. Rio Grande River. Uh, Rio Grande. I bet it's pronounced both ways. Passing by town, and this dam was built in 1915. It created the Elephant Butte Reservoir. 
uh, stood as the largest irrigation dam ever built at the time of its construction and would remain so, uh, biggest dam in the world for irrigation dam until 1970 when the Aswan Dam in Egypt was built. Uh, settlement of the area really didn't pick up until after the dam was built and the reservoir was there. Uh, suddenly there was a lot more water for farming and ranching, and then there was this big-ass lake. It became a popular fishing destination. It's the biggest lake, uh, I think I said that, in New Mexico. Various types of bass, crappie, crappie, walleye, catfish. Um, as of the 2010 census, the population of Elephant Butte was over 92% white, 0.3% African American. So there was one African American family living there, uh, 0.9% Native American, maybe two or three families, and uh, 0.5% Asian. I, I would say maybe one, you know, bigger, poor uh, family running the town's only Chinese restaurant. And in, in, in the hypersensitive current <laughs> climate of our culture, please do not interpret that as racist. Uh, I have just been over the course of my travels in a lot of white little towns in America. And if they have more than about a thousand people, they generally have one Asian restaurant, and it's almost always Chinese. Uh, my theory on that is that Thai, Korean, Vietnamese, Japanese still seem uh, too exotic for a lot of our nation's small town whites. You know, just what? What the fuck is pho? Why don't y'all have chicken fried rice? Come on, do you have uh, beef and broccoli? Bomb me! I didn't. Hey, I didn't come here for no goddamn sandwich. I came here for rice, sweet and sour chicken. And to stare at the hostess, cute little Chinese butt. I've only, I've only seen one Asian butt up close. Uh, the rest of the town was, from what I can tell, probably Mexican. And uh, if you're thinking about moving there, I would not. According to the city's official website, the city of elephantbutte.com, there are no job openings of any kind at this time. However, snagajob.com does say that there are a couple. It says Family Dollar is currently looking for a customer service representative and an assistant store manager. Uh, also, the city is looking for volunteers to help out with trash pickup and a uh, flag display setup. <laughs> Seriously, that was one of the uh, volunteer positions listed was flag display setup. They're, uh, they're apparently really hurting for a new flag setter upper. So if you got a flag, if you got some flag setup skills and you want to feel valued in your community and you don't need money, you get your ass to Elephant Butte. They need you. Uh, there's a golf course, a few spas in the area. Basically, from what I can tell, Elephant Butte's like a, a little lake resort town on a budget. Maybe kind of like um, – reminds me a, a little bit of like the, the Ozarks in Missouri, like that Lake Ozark kind of area. You know, started off with a, uh, some ranchers and farmers living in the area and then evolved to have a marina, brought in tourists, small tourism industry built around uh, fishing, boating, water skiing, et cetera, developed, created the town, sustains the town still. Uh, probably had a lot of second homes, you know. Maybe you live in Albuquerque where you, uh, you work and then you hit the lake in the summer, a few different weekends uh, or you retire. You know, you go to play golf and live somewhere quiet. It's a place uh, you go to. Sorry, one second. Oh, my gosh. I, uh, I've i had like a, the tiniest speck. It's crazy. I had a tiny speck of lettuce on my tongue. I know it's TMI. But um, it's driving me insane for five minutes. I've been trying to like quietly as I talk, work it around my mouth and just grab it. I couldn't fucking grab it. So that was weird. Anyway, you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, people fish, boat, water, ski. Uh, around there, you know, a little tourism industry sustains the town. You know, again, probably a lot of second homes, like I said. Uh, or like I said, you could retire there, play some golf, go somewhere quiet. Uh, it's a place you go to if you're uh, New Mexico rich, but not like rich, rich. Like maybe you have the money for a summer home on the lake, but not enough uh, for like a Lake Tahoe lake house or some other place, you know, more known or desirable. Truth or consequences, the nearby, very close by uh, uh, other little town is, is, a, is like a resort town as well. Uh, built around a bunch of natural hot springs that gave the town its original name of hot springs. About about 40 natural hot springs in the area. Over 10 spas. The website lists, it, uh, lists uh, the town as a popular destination for snowbirds. People looking to 
live somewhere in the winter that has a mild winter. The average age is 58. See, you know, you can retire. You can snowbird there, seasonally help out with all that fucking flag setup they're worried about, and have a nice life. And uh, while I joke about how small the area is, area is, it, it is pretty popular. According to tourist websites, it can swell in population to about 100,000 people on a popular summer weekend when everyone's hitting that lake. And, uh, okay, so that's the town. Now you know a little bit about the area. Now let's, uh, let, let's get into the life and, uh, and, and crimes and horrible details of, of a man who would, uh, you know, put this uh, area on the map, so to speak, with the horrific deeds he committed with today's Time Suck timeline. But first, but first, before we get into that, uh, Time Suck is brought to you today by The Great Courses Plus. Often, the most compelling, remarkable stories from history are the ones about real people and events. You know that. That's why you listen to Time Suck. That's why we're here today. The most interesting stories are the real ones. And The Great Courses Plus also understands this, which is why you can stream these fascinating courses on The Great Courses Plus. On the web, on their app. You get to explore different time periods, different parts of the world, learn from passionate, award-winning experts. I love it. The Great Courses Plus app has thousands of lectures to watch and listen to at any time. Uh, Right now, I recommend their course, Pompeii, Daily Life in an Ancient Roman City. In this course, you'll hear the firsthand account from Pliny the Younger, who detailed the horrific events surrounding the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. I watched it. I've been fascinated with Pompeii since I was a kid. Uh, Three straight days. Mount Vesuvius rains pumice stone and ash down on the city of Pompeii. Molten mud pours into town, buries people alive. It's uh, eerie. The remains just frozen in time. You can see exactly the way they were laying or standing or whatever when they died. The city just turned into this giant time capsule. And that's how we've uh, been able to learn so much about uh, this city and Roman civilization in general. And Dr. Stephen L. Tuck, he breaks it all down in The Great Courses Plus. And we have a Spartacus episode coming up soon. Right? Sparta! So it's, uh, it's a good time to get to know more about the Roman Empire. And I do realize that quote was from the 300, which uh, doesn't have anything to do with uh, Spartacus, the, the, the gladiator. But I like to say it. You'll love the Great Courses Plus. So we've arranged a special limited time offer for our listeners. Sign up for a free month of unlimited access to all their lectures at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Start your free month. Link is in the episode description. Now we go into today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. On November 6, 1939, David Parker Ray is born in Balin, New Mexico. Uh, Balin's a little town of roughly 7,000 people, 35 miles south of Albuquerque. Uh, I guess it just happened to have the nearest hospital. If I got the pronunciation wrong, please understand that no one outside of New Mexico gives a single fuck about the pronunciation of that town. There were three different pronunciation guides about how to say it, and all three gave wildly different answers. I, I'm, I'm guessing all three of them were also guessing. Uh, I, uh, I chose to put the one uh, out there that was uh, listed by the Encyclopedia of SantaFe.com. Little is known about David's parents, Cecil and Nettie Ray. There really wasn't much affection in my childhood, David would later say. I was there physically, but nobody paid any attention to me. You know, it was like like I wasn't really there at all. And, and much of this timeline does come from uh, David's firsthand accounts given in, in uh, interviews he gave after being incarcerated. Uh, he's, he said Cecil was an abusive drunk who lashed out at his wife and kids. He eventually left Nettie and the kids when David was 10 years old after Cecil divorced Nettie. 
The decision was made to send David and Peggy to live with their grandparents on a rural ranch in Mountain Air, New Mexico. Pretty sure I nailed that pronunciation. Uh, David said, when I was a little kid, my mother and father pawned me and my sister Peggy off on Dolly, my mother's mother, who lived on a farm up in the hills near Mountain Air, New Mexico. There wasn't anything to do there. My dad was a drunk and a drifter, and every six months he would drop by and bring me a pile of True Detective magazines. And when I was about 10 years old, I started to have these fantastic dreams about raping and killing young girls. In the dreams, I always used a broken beer bottle on them. Wow. Not normal. If you're a young boy listening to this episode and share that fantasy, tell your parents you need to talk to a fucking counselor right now. I'm 100% serious. You don't try to fix this now. There's a good chance you're going to be too fucked up to deal with it later. So David was an abandoned young boy who felt neglected, at least emotionally. He was clearly developing a a strong hatred of women, probably centered around his grandma. He didn't uh, appear to like her from other things I read. Maybe he blamed his mom for his dad not sticking around. Maybe his dad constantly had horrible things to say about women. Maybe it was as simple as the, uh, you know, he was uber sensitive and the girls at school just didn't like him and made fun of him. And uh, and he started to develop some very strong revenge type sexual fantasies. We don't, we don't, we don't know exactly uh, what went on. He just never said. Uh, I think it's weird that he, he seemed to kind of, um, kind of blame his, his, the, the true detective magazines his dad was bringing around for his fantasies. You know, what's interesting is Ed Gein. Remember, he got really into those same magazines. He was way into those kind of magazines. Um, he did talk about his grandmother, I guess, a little bit more. He said, I hated my grandmother. She didn't care about us. By the time I was 12 years old, I was making my own bombs and setting off explosives all over the woods. My granny didn't have a clue. She was a real fruitcake. I blew up a lot of tree stumps when I was a kid. By the time I was 15, I had a private dungeon under a big pignon pine tree. I had a hangman's noose and a collection of broken beer bottles I planned to use on girls someday. Jesus. Uh, when I got lonesome, <laughs> I used to fuck a hole I dug in the ground. Okay. All right. I, lo- I love how he is the one blowing shit up in the woods and literally fucking holes in the ground. And yet he's like, ah, my grandma's a real fruitcake. She didn't notice the stuff I was blowing. No, you're the fruitcake. You're the fruitiest of fruitcakes. Uh, man, and I thought, I thought puberty was weird for me because I, I fucked some pillows. Uh, not sure how normal that is, but uh, it does feel more normal than fucking an actual uh, hole in the ground. So something is even weirder to me about digging the hole that you then, you then, you know, put your dick in. Oh my god. Okay. And I definitely didn't have the broken beer bottle fantasy. Don't don't have it now, thank God. Uh, again, if you have it, please see a therapist. Make an appointment right now. I, I think it's I think it's one thing to have sadomasochistic fantasies. A lot of people have healthy BDSM bondage type sex lives. I get wanting to control or be controlled. You know, I get the appeal of, uh, you know, uh, wanting someone to want you to be their plaything or wanting to have the plaything. Some people truly enjoy a certain level of masochism or sadism. But I think when your fantasies involve truly hurting someone who doesn't want to be hurt or hurting someone in a way that sends them to the ER or, or when, the, when the fantasy is attraction to the pain, not the sexual pleasure some, somebody could get through a little bit of pain, I think you've crossed a big fucking line. Like when you get off on hurt. That's that's a, that's problematic to me. I think you're walking into budding serial killer territory there, me amigo. Uh, I don't give a fuck what any sex therapist might say. True sadism, true like I get wet or I get hard at the thought of legitimately creating pain. Causing true bodily harm to another human being is fucking dark. It's not healthy. Telling yourself it is, I, th- I think, is just rationalizing your own horrific choices. At some point, even when masochists give consent, I think it's fucked up to hurt them as much as they want to be hurt. I feel like you're feeding in to some kind of uh, 
you know, degradation fantasy they have or like because of like low self-esteem or self-hate, you're adding to it. You're degrading someone who gets off on being degraded because they just fucking hate themselves. You know, someone who wants you to, to someone to like choke them a bit, slap them a bit, spank their ass. OK, that's fine. That can be hot. I get it. I do. There's a carnally exciting level of, of rough sex, sex play out there. But if, if they're like beat my face bloody, I want you to break my nose. I want you to choke me until I pass out. I want you to shove a Coke bottle in my ass, and then I want you to take a shit on my face. I, that's when you run for the hills. If it was an RC Cola bottle, you can work with that. Uh, no, of course not. That'd be a weird distinction to make. Uh, no, but yeah, that's, you got a Looney Tune on your hands there, right? They tell them you need a therapist when you're nowhere near them, and they can't flip out and try and incriminate you because they're fucking out of their goddamn minds. Uh, be gone, Lucifina. You've gone too far this time. Anyway, David told investigators, I was real shy when I was a child. Still am. I wouldn't even look at a girl. I always kept my eyes down. I didn't have my first date until I was 18 years old. So he's got these weird, horrible, violent fantasies that no one is uh, putting him in check with. They're just continuing to develop during his sexual identification years before he can actually have sex. I'm sure hardening his synapses is making his little connections there in his, in his little fucking wee brain. Actually, dude had a pretty big brain. He was horrible, but he was uh, criminally very intelligent. Um, he gets married at the age of 19 in 1959. He's working as an auto mechanic at the time in Mountain Air. He said, I got married for the first time, and I swear to God, I was almost a virgin. And then in 1960, he joined the Army after getting his first wife pregnant, and he went to fight in Korea. He had a son, but doesn't mention his son's name in any interviews, and there's no mention of the son in various articles about him on the web. Some articles even list him as having only one child, a daughter we'll talk about later. Not sure why that is. I I feel like he didn't end up raising his first son. And, and virtually had no relationship with his son uh, after young childhood based on the lack of information. In 1961, he comes home from Korea. And again, this is according to him. And uh, says, I came home to get a divorce. He said his young wife was leaving the baby alone while she went out to party. So no bueno. By the time David got back to the United States, his son was being uh, cared for by the Department of Public Welfare. He asked him to give him custody. They did, supposedly. And then his mother, Opal, and his stepfather, Cecil, raised the son until he got out of the army. I think they may have just raised the son and then passed him off on other family members after that. Because, uh, again, not mentioned. And uh, But I don't know. Maybe, maybe he just wasn't pertinent to the later investigation, so that's why he wasn't mentioned. Not totally sure. 1962, David got married again when he was 22. So uh, 90 days later, he goes back to court, gets another divorce, later saying, we just didn't click. I wonder if by didn't click, there was some version of him asking her if she would like a broken beer bottle shoved into her vagina and her demanding an immediate divorce. Two divorces by the age of 22. Dude's on fire. Just burning through weddings. 1966, David marries a woman named Glenda Burdeen when he was 26. Married three times by the age of 26 in small town New Mexico. Sounds like the setup for a sad crying in your beer kind of country song. Finally, he names one of his wives, by the way. David and Glenda were married for almost 15 years. It'd be his longest relationship. In 1967, they had a daughter, Glenda Jean, who uh, sadly David did help raise. She is going to resurface later on in this story in the most fucked up ways imaginable. Uh, David had a hard time finding work. He and the fam bounced around between New Mexico, Texas, and Oklahoma. He went to aircraft mechanic school in Tulsa. And he uh, still wasn't able to get a uh, steady job, still wasn't able to get steady work at that point. And the family was in such bad financial shape, according to him, that Glenda did what a lot of good wives do, you know, when their backs are up against the wall. And she became a prostitute sometime around 1970. God, man, when you're so desperate to make a living, you're considering prostitution. I always wonder, like, how do you not consider stripping first? Right? Just like, like, did they not have strip clubs in Tulsa in 1970? 
or or is it a situation where sadly this would be so sad you're not attractive enough to get a job as a stripper but you are attractive enough to find work as like a like a bottom shelf prostitute that is the fucking saddest life like you your life is just eating a shit sandwich and washing it down with a cup of your own tears at that point like if uh if you are personally not in that position feel good about your life right now uh if you are in that position ah fuck i am i am glad you have this podcast to listen to i uh I definitely do not uh, – I do not look down on you. I feel – I just feel like, oh, please do something else to to increase the happiness of your life. Maybe maybe get into selling Beanie Babies on eBay or something. Just, you know, go through recyclables and people's trash and sell aluminum cans. See if Walmart's hiring any greeters. Just fucking anything. Anything has to be better than working as a not attractive enough to be a Tulsa stripper, Tulsa prostitute. Uh, David claims he did not like Glenda walking the streets but admitted, quote, it sure paid the bills. Uh, he also says she let him uh, tie her up a couple times, but that was it. You know, no no broken bottles, nothing real fun. He also said he had some type of fuck dungeon downstairs in the house, uh, but that most of the time she didn't have the slightest idea what he was up to, which makes no sense at all. And this is all of his, you know, interviews. <laughs> he did say in this one interview, he's like, you know, it's like, um, yeah, yeah, I had like a, uh, you know, the sex dungeon downstairs, but but she didn't really know what was going on. She didn't she didn't really know what I was up to. Uh, if I had a sex dungeon in the basement, <laughs> Lindsay would know about it. She would, she would know about it long before it was built. You know, just Dan, why did you just order a bunch of chains, metal collars, leather masks, whips, paddles, gag balls, handcuffs, dildos, vibrators, industrial sized vat of lube, edible panties, corsets, fishnet stockings, sex dolls, numbing cream, butt plugs, anal beads, dog cage? Why'd you order that off of Amazon? Oh, that stuff did. Did I forget to tell you that I've been I've been planning on turning the family room into a fuck dungeon? Where are we supposed to watch TV? Just upstairs. What about the kids? What are we supposed to tell them? I don't know. Just tell them not to head down to the fuck dungeon when they hear groans or screams or the crack of a whip. Uh, by the 1970s, while Glenda continued to uh, prostitute herself out in Tulsa, little Glenda Jean is in grade school. Dad David is designing custom-made torture equipment down in the fuck dungeon. And selling it via ads placed in the back pages of a fine, upstanding publication called Screw Magazine. I'm not making this up. What a childhood for little Glenda Jean. What what do your parents do for work? I do not want to talk about it. I will not be talking about it. Screw Magazine, by the way, I had to look into that. Uh, It's a real thing. It's a weekly pornographic tabloid that was published from 1968 to 2003 in the U.S. by Al Goldstein. He pumped out 140,000 copies a week at its height. How did I not know about this? Uh, the magazine billed itself as, quote, jerk-off entertainment for men. I do like how, like, this magazine wasn't even trying to hide what it was. <laughs> what is that? Is it, uh, like, like you, can't, <laughs> you can't justify reading something for the articles when it's billed as jerk-off entertainment for men. Uh, Al also briefly published the far less successful Bitch and Smut magazines in 1974. Smut was self-described as being, quote, so filthy that not only do you have to wash after every page, but every reader must disinfect after reading. Smut is so dirty, so scummy that once you have it on your hands, you can't get it off. And David Parker Ray, big fan. He's uh, one of the biggest fans. He's, He's selling stuff in the back pages. Of course he is. 1991, 43-year-old David leaves his third wife slash career prostitute when he finds her in bed with another man who is not a paying customer. Seriously. That's that's the line he drew. He was, you know, he said it was uh, her day off, so I knew it didn't have anything to do with money. And then he said he walked out the next day with Joni Lee, her sister-in-law. 
Dear God, again, poor Glenda Jean, little Glenda Jean. Her dad is making fuck toys in the basement, in the dungeon. Her mom is an affair-having prostitute, and now her dad is leaving town with her Aunt Joni. Is it possible to have that kind of childhood and then end up with a stable, quiet, financially successful life in the suburbs? I mean, it, I, I, it is. I know there's people who make it, but motherfucker, that has to be uh, hard to make it to a normal place in life or a successful place in life when you when you come into life with that big of a handicap from your childhood. It has to be so hard to become a high-functioning, well-adjusted adult. If you listening have overcome some shit anywhere near that and have found your path in life, you know, God, God bless you. Hail Nimrod. Okay, so after leaving his wife for his sister-in-law, who uh, he was clearly having an affair with already, if they leave town together the day after he finds out his wife is having an affair, uh, David and Aunt Joni, they drive to California and for the next year live in Grass Valley up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Grass Valley, by the way, is a little 12,000 or so person town, former Gold Rush California town, less than 50 miles from Donner Pass. So a little suck-to-suck connection uh, with, uh, with uh, you know, several weeks ago. David... Uh, Aunt Joni, they grow marijuana up in the hills for a year. They live out of a trailer. If only they would have sold enough weed to either be successful enough to stay there or get arrested with enough weed to go to prison for a long time. We wouldn't be talking about David today. And an untold amount of people would be a lot better off. But the weed wasn't selling well enough. The two decided to get regular jobs. They drove to the uh, turnoff at Death Valley in 1981 or 82, somewhere in there. The spot where the road forks, you can go to either Vegas or Phoenix. And according to David, they flipped a coin to determine which city they would live in. That's how, that's how you know you are kicking ass in life. When you're in your 30s and you're flipping coins on the side of the fucking road to determine where you're going to try and have a life. Uh, David picked Phoenix, won the toss, so off to Phoenix they go. 1983, David has a job as a mechanic at Canal Motors, a used car dealership in Phoenix. And, and the two had made things even more awkward for their extended families by getting married. So gross. If, uh, if my dad left his lady for, uh, you know, her sister or sister-in-law, he'd be fucking dead to me. Enjoy the rest of your life, you creep. You're never welcome in this house again. Some people are such preposterous train wrecks. Uh, David claimed he was still plagued with violent bondage fantasies at this time and that every six or eight months, he said, I would get the urge. I can't tell you what it felt like working around all that temptation. Any time of day, you could see them. Hookers, four or five of them walking by Night and day. I started hiring girls to help relieve the pressure of my fantasy. I'd hire a hooker to do the dirty deed and pay her $300 an hour. I'd whip them, but I'd never break the skin. Never. We had a code word we would use when it got too rough. When it got too painful for one of them, all they had to do was say the code word out loud. There was no way Joni Lee would take part in that fantasy. She knew what I liked, but she wouldn't let me use her. She was jealous of the fantasy. We kind of drifted apart. And this is supposedly how things went for about a decade. David using Phoenix area hookers to satisfy the sadistic urges Aunt Joni wasn't comfortable with. In 1994, David's fourth marriage finally collapses. Aunt Joni had been having epileptic attacks and she had started drinking real heavy and it was all becoming too much for David to handle. I bet being with uh, David this long had something to do with the heavy drinking, right? And then one day she held a pistol up to David's head and threatened to squeeze the trigger. If only she had. It would be so great. In the grand scheme of things, if she just would have pulled that trigger. But she didn't, and then David uh, sends her to uh, her mom in Pennsylvania. And then David claims, for the next three years, it was just me and the fantasy. I was getting the urge every two or three months. After that, it really got worse, especially after I started taking Viagra. I even started taking other pills to suppress my sex drive. Nothing worked. 
I have this master sketch notebook of drawings. Some of them are real frightening. The sketches kind of track the progress of the fantasy. I like how he acts like he's trying to control a dark sexual fantasy and, uh, and takes Viagra. You know, I, I was doing everything I could to put out that fire. I was, I was throwing gasoline on it. I was, I was adding more kindling. I was putting dry grass on it and charcoal lighter. Uh, kept flipping matches on it. And, you know, for some reason, it still kept burning. Uh, he also said he was reading a lot of true crime book, books. Uh, he said they kind of fuel the fantasy. I've been collecting books on serial killers for the last 15 years. I've read all 12 of the Ted Bundy books. And, of course, I really like Stephen King. I also like Dean Koontz. God dang it. I've read a lot of serial killer books. Uh, I'm reading Stephen King's latest right now, and I love it. And I've read a lot of Dean Koontz. However, I have never had a fuck dungeon or sold fuck toys to Screw Magazine. Phew. And then David said he read a book by Christine McGuire called Perfect Victim, and that after that, he changed the way he did things. The killer in the book used to put a woman's head inside a box so she couldn't see what was going on around her, and that really turned him on. I'm, I'm sure Christine loved to find that out. Uh, the book he's referring to, by the way, was a New York Times number one bestseller called The Sex Slave and the Girl in the Box Case. It's a true story behind Colleen Stan's terrifying seven-year-long, seven-year-long imprisonment by Cameron Hooker as told by the district attorney who tried the case. It's a crazy story that uh, episodes of Criminal Minds and Law and & Order and various made-for-TV movies have been based on. This poor woman was turned into a sex slave through kidnapping and constant brainwashing, and she was forced to stay in a small box, like a, like a smaller-than-a-coffin-sized box, small enough to slide under a bed where she was confined 23 hours a day, off and on, sometimes for uh, several years at a time for, over, for roughly seven years. And, and further side note here, the 61-year-old piece of shit who imprisoned her was recently up for parole. He's been in prison since 1985. He'll be up for parole again. He was denied this first time, and, but he'll be up again in 2022. Like, what the fuck? When you are found guilty of kidnapping someone and then making them live in a tiny box and raping them daily for seven fucking years, why are you allowed a chance of freedom after that? Like, why? That's not, civil, that's not civilized uh, to, to have that kind of criminal system. That's a travesty of justice. Travesty. There you go. Sorry. But, you, but like, truly, like, that motherfucker deserves death. Can we, can we please kill some of these subhuman pieces of shit? Like, let me do it. Like, I, I truly would kill that fuck myself tomorrow if the state allowed me to do it. I truly would. I know it sounds like, ah, it's easy to say. Oh, man, it would feel so good to just get rid of, like, one piece of shit like that. Just to know that they were gone forever. Do you understand now uh, why The Punisher is my favorite comic book character of all time? Uh, anyway, David starts really fantasizing about his uh, having his own long-term sex life after reading this story. He, he has a very different reaction to this story than I did. After reading it, you know, I think, man, fuck that guy. I wish I could just kill him myself. He thinks, man, what a, what a great idea. This guy's figured it out. Man, I wish I could do that to some girl. Well, shortly after divorcing Aunt Joni, uh, David moves to the sleepy little resort town of Elephant Butte, New Mexico, gets a job as a park ranger and uh, at the Elephant Butte State Park. Now think about this. He, how many tourists saw David working at the park in the mid to late 90s, driving around the park, making sure people don't, you know, litter? Have proper boat permits, you know, do whatever the fuck a park ranger does. And this park ranger is a dude who had uh, made weird sex toys in a fuck dungeon for several years. He's, uh, he's a man who's whipped prostitutes in Phoenix for several years. Uh, he's a man, uh, you know, actively fantasizing about kidnapping some woman and torturing her and raping her repeatedly, brainwashing her into uh, becoming a sex slave. And he appears to be just a shy state park ranger. You know, just uh, some guy in his, in, his, in his late 50s. And then in 1997, 59-year-old David Parker Ray... Meets who will be the Bonnie to his Clyde, 37-year-old Cindy Hendy, 
born in 1960. Uh, he says, I was real lonely before I met Cindy Hendy. She moved here in 1997, and I met her after she got into trouble for fighting with one of her boyfriends. Judge Fitch sentenced her to do community service work at Elephant Butte State Park, where I work. The first day I met her, she told me in a real matter-of-fact voice, I don't like women, and I don't like men much either. Didn't take long until I fell madly in love with her. Even right now, I love her dearly. That's so fucked up. He clearly hated himself about as much as his victims. Like Your head is not right if you meet a woman who's doing community service for, I'm guessing, assaulting her former boyfriend. And then she tells you she doesn't like women and that she really doesn't like men either. And then you're like, I love her. This is She's perfect. Uh, David and Cindy started dating, and he didn't discuss his dark fantasies with her, according to him. I, based on what you're going to find out later, I don't believe this one bit. But that's what he said. He said slowly in his own words, you know, I manipulated her to my fantasy. She allowed me to do anything to her body even though she didn't like it. I softened my fantasies for her because I didn't want to alienate her. Once I showed her my album of drawings and it scared her. I don't think it scared her that bad because she didn't leave. She became his accomplice. And as we'll uh, find out soon, he he may, uh, I'd say probably, have been doing a lot more than drawing evil shit before he met her. Uh, As in, I, I think definitely, even though he was, you know, not found guilty in court. And at this point, we're, we're going to hop out of today's time suck timeline because we're going to be bouncing around, uh, you know, years and stuff for the for the rest of the story. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. David, in the self-disclosed timeline we've walked down so far, you know, uh, I feel probably left out a lot of details about his story, like uh, probably a shit ton of murders. Some think he may have started killing as early as the 1950s. Pure speculation, but it's out there. Uh, even though he is now known as the Toy Box Killer, he actually would never be convicted of a single murder. Uh, before we dive into uh, why that may have gone down that way, let's talk about what did happen. Uh, before we uh, further talk about what may have happened, let's jump ahead to where our story began earlier today to Cindy Vigil, Cynthia Vigil, uh, running naked and bloody through an Elephant Butte trailer park and calling the police on March 22nd, 1999. Uh, and again, she was just 22 when uh, when this happened. And when the police showed up in the trailer uh, that she ran into and interviewed her, this is the story she gave them taken straight from the police report. This is uh, the words of the police report. She indicated that on Saturday, March 20th, 1999, between 10 and 11 a.m., she was streetwalking on Central Avenue, Highway 66 in Albuquerque, and she was introduced to the two suspects by a local pimp. She met David Parker Ray and Cindy Hendy in a recreational vehicle owned by Ray. When she stepped inside the RV, uh, Ray showed her a small police badge and told her she was under arrest for solicitation. Hendy then came out of the vehicle restroom and handcuffed her. She was restrained to a fixture in the camper, and the suspect stripped her of all of her clothing and threatened to shock her if she resisted. Ms. Vigil stated that she was then taken to an unknown location where she was restrained by her arms and her legs. She said Ray placed dildos into her vagina and wrecked them simultaneously while Hendy watched. She described receiving shock therapy, in which Ray attached electrical connections to her breasts, which would send electrical shocks through her body. Uh, both times, Hendy would wave a small revolver, threatening to shoot her if she tried to escape while this went on. Ms. Vigil recounted how on Sunday, March 21st, 1999, Ray and Hendy hung her up from the ceiling in one bedroom by her arms and legs. She was then whipped on the back with a leather whip. After the whipping, Ray inserted a large metal dildo into her vagina. Ms. Vigil also de- stated that an introductory audio tape recording was played to her, detailing what David Ray was going to do to her. She was also shown photographs of other naked women who had been tied up. Uh, 
Ms. Vigil stated that Ray took photographs of her while she was restrained from the ceiling of one of his rooms. She referred to this as the dirty room. My God, this audio tape, by the way, we're going to examine later, and it is fucking off the chart dark. It's so crazy. Uh, Ms. Vigil also described being taken into the place that would give David Parker Ray his dark nickname, the Toy Box. Well, shortly after David Parker Ray's capture, FBI agent Yance uh, walked up to the rear end of this toy box, this $100,000 handmade chamber of horrors. And that's, and that's what, they, what they guess he spent on creating this thing. Uh, the agent first noticed it didn't have any windows. He walked up to four steps, opened what had previously been a double dead-bolted steel-reinforced door. Hanging on the wall was a roll of paper towels that said, Home, Sweet Home. On the left wall, Jim noticed a large white sign with the big red block uh, letters that identified David Ray's name for his little private hideaway, Satan's Den. Next to the big sign was a smaller white sign with black underlined letters that identified what Yance was about to see, the bondage room. Standing right next to Satan's Den, uh, that sign was a tall tripod with a very expensive RCA Victor camcorder pointing towards a large black leather table slash chair rigged up with metal stirrups, electrodes, and dozens of red plastic straps. Hanging from the ceiling next to what looked like this gynecology table was an RCA Victor television set positioned so that female victims could see what Ray was doing to them. Walking up the left side of the chamber, Yant saw a coat hanger with a long black robe hanging from it. The robe had a red cape. Uh, this is like his fucking Satan ritual little outfit. Uh, there was a business-like clipboard hanging next to the robe, and Yance noticed that Ray had what looked like a roll call list of victims he'd kidnapped between 1993 and 1997. Each nameless woman on the list had cowboy-like notch marks listing how many times they'd been assaulted and their date of capture. 18 victims were on the clipboard. Uh, many had over 50 notches. Uh, halfway down the left-hand wall, Yance walked up to a large cork bulletin board covered with a Black and white photographs and color photographs and black and white drawings of women all being tortured. A sign above the bulletin board read, The Lure of Satanism. There were pictures of women in obvious pain. One woman had naked breasts hogtied at the base with circles of constricting white rope making them bulge. Old-fashioned wooden clothespins were attached to each nipple. Her face uh, smothered in fear. A third picture showed a faceless woman tied down to a bench press with her legs forced wide apart. Bruises covered her body, especially the inside of her thighs. Another drawing showed a woman down on her hands and knees attached to something Ray called his doggy frame. We will hear more about that particular device when we cover his audio tapes. Uh, there was a drawing of a woman hanging from the ceiling by her ankles and hands with a man below, inserting two dildos into the two openings between her legs. The man playing doctor wore a satanic pentagram around his neck. Uh, res res the man resembled a much younger version of David Parker Ray, mustache and all. The wall on the right-hand side of the toy box was covered with David's tools. Chains, whips, paddles, pulleys, leather belts, saw blades, harnesses, handcuffs, ropes, wires, needles, pins, screw clamps, nipple clamps, breast camps, breast suction cups, uh, suction cups, metal bras, sandpaper, fuck, metal dildos, wooden dildos, plastic dildos, latex dildos of all sizes, a branding iron, a soldering iron, and weighted lead sinkers. There was even an assortment of fish hooks. Motherfucker. A large yellow generator sat on the floor under the wall of the dangling sex toys, had a handle on top, was attached to the back of a 15-inch flesh-colored motorized dildo pointing forward, designed to look exactly like a man's penis, 
right down to the uh, bulging veins. The giant rubber device looked as big as a large sausage and was so thick no man could ever grip it around the middle with a closed fist. Uh, The back of the generator had three switches, buzzer, light, and probe. The entire apparatus looked like it could be picked up and wielded like, quote, some kind of jackhammer. Mother fucker. He deserves to be dead just for what we've just described. This is some of the most vile shit I've ever read about. This guy was not interested in in providing anyone with pleasure. Uh, The space between the walls of the cargo trailer were filled with large gynecological table chair uh, rigged to slide back and forth on a six-foot tract wired to a voltage meter with wires that could be attached to a woman's breasts and her genitalia. A large hooded elbow light was bolted to the end of the table to illuminate the victim's vagina while Ray forced her to watch him rape her live on TV. Walking down the right side of the chamber, Yance looked down at the floor and saw a one-foot-tall Barbie doll with long black hair. Miniature chains were attached like shackles and hanging from her ankles, wrists, nipples, and neck. This is just a big fucking joke to him. You know, he's making a little doll that you know he fucking taunted victims with, you know, showing them what was going to happen to them. Just the rape, the torture, all just a big laugh to this sadistic fuck. Man, uh, finally arrived. It, it, it is unbelievable. that This is like, this is shit that happened. Like someone fucking made this thing. A human being made this thing and decided to do this stuff to other human beings. Finally arriving at the back of the trailer. On the right side, Yance examined Ray's stainless steel medicine cabinet. It was covered with latex gloves, forceps, rolls of cotton. Uh, Spanish KY jelly, petroleum jelly, bottles of chloroform, ammonia poppers, hypodermic syringes. There was three white candles that were mounted on top of a model of a human skull. The bleached skull was standing next to a hand-carved wooden dildo. To the left was a collection of David Ray's small library of mostly female anatomy and witchcraft books. Books like The Dark World of Witches, American Psycho, and Emergency Victim Care. That is... Not a reassuring book to see there. Emergency victim care. Uh, multiple piles of torture drawings. Uh, Agent Yance found uh, uh, one one uh, picture, or I guess, or I'm sorry, one uh, torture drawing, excuse me, that would forever leave a permanent imprint on his mind. It was labeled the 12-volt motorized breast stretcher. And he'd seen a photograph of Cindy Vigil, Cynthia Vigil, in the toy box that looked like this drawing. So this had happened to Cynthia. David Ray had a drawing of a naked woman strapped down by her hips, belly, and chest with a hood over her face. Rubber-lined clamps were attached to her nipples, connected to the machine by nylon cords. Ray had typed instructions telling his followers how to torture the victim. So it's not just him doing this stuff. Operate motor, motor with the lever in the up position. Attach clamps securely to each nipple. Tighten cord until breasts are stretched to the maximum length. Turn machine on. Watch nipples for indication of tearing. And check clamps for slippage continue to operate. And then he has a note. He literally writes, note. The process is very painful and due to the constant motion, the body will not adjust to the pain. During the operation, the subject will remain in extremely painful distress. And there are even more horrific details about the toy box, but that's all I can handle in this little section. I I fucking hate him so much. Agent Yance also listened to the tape that was played for Cynthia and and for who knows how many other women who were caught. This incredibly is even darker than what we've already covered in our description of the toy box. So victims like Cynthia Vigil, after being kidnapped, would be forced to listen to a fucked up sadism orientation tape. You know, that jigsaw type shit I talked about earlier, that whole, like, would you like to play a game? Like, just monstrous. 
I have a transcript of the orientation tape. The, the actual tape's real audio has not been released, and I hope it never is. Uh, it's way too long to read all of it. It's going to be about an hour's worth of info, maybe an hour and a half even. It's, it's, it's too vile to stick with for even close to that long. But this is, uh, you know, we are going to explore this dark subject matter. That's, that's why we're here. Uh, I have selected some excerpts. Here's how it starts. And again, this is super dark. This is the part where I was like, oh, fuck, man. I don't know about this. Uh, he says he opens the tape with, hello there, bitch. Are you comfortable right now? I doubt it. Wrists and ankles chained, gagged, probably blindfolded. You are disorientated and scared too, I would imagine. Perfectly normal under the circumstances. For a little while at least, you need to get your shit together and listen to this tape. It is very relevant to your situation. I'm going to tell you in detail why you have been kidnapped, what's going to happen to you, and how long you'll be here. I don't know the details of your capture because this tape is being created July 23rd, 1993 as a general advisory tape for future female captives. He wasn't caught until March of 1999. Had he been doing this shit for at least six years? Six years, at least. Probably quite a bit longer. Because I don't think you start with a tape like this. I, I, I think you would probably, you would do it for so long, you got tired of having to go over the rules. And finally reached a point of like, all right, all right, tired of getting all these women, a kidnapping, you know, tortured, caught up to speed. Gotta, gotta make a tape. That'd be so much more efficient for the massive amounts of torturing I'm doing. Uh, he alludes to that much when he continues. He says, the information I'm going to give you is based on my experience dealing with captives over a period of several years. If at a future date there are any major changes in our procedures, the tape will be upgraded. What the fuck? What a weird detail to add. Like, like why would anyone give a shit about Like, why would the person – I would love to hear like a psychologist take on why he included that detail. Like, does he think the person waking up tied up in a fucking metal box cares about future upgrades to their torture scenario? You know, is anyone ever waking up thinking like, well, is this valid? I mean, this tape was made several years ago. Like, am I? Am I going to be tortured according to the guidelines in this this tape? Or am I going to be, you know, disappointed that things have changed and no one's even bothered to tell me? You know? Oh, oh, okay, okay, good. The information is correct. They're, they would update. Okay, good. Okay. Uh, so I will be tortured in the manner you're going to describe. Okay, perfect, perfect. Uh, continue. Now, like, what is going on in his head where that detail seems like an important thing to say? He says, now you are obviously here against your will, totally helpless, don't know where you're at, don't know what's going to happen to you. You're very scared or very pissed off. I'm sure that you've already tried to get your wrists and ankles loose and no, you can't. Now you're just waiting to see what's going to happen next. You probably think you're going to be raped and you're fucking sure right about that. It's literally what he says. Our primary interest is in what you've got between your legs. You'll be raped thoroughly and repeatedly in every hole you've got because basically you've been snatched and brought to us here to train and use as a sex slave. Fuck. Can you imagine waking up bound, possibly gagged, tapes playing, and that's what you hear? That's what that's, that's happened to humans. So that's how it starts, and now I'm going to be skipping around here. At one point he says, you're going to be kept here and used until such time as we get tired of fucking around with you. And we will eventually in a month or two, maybe three, and then he actually says, it's no big deal. I swear to God, it's, it's no big deal. What is big deal? I just keep you tied up for raping and cutting and shocking and stuff. It's no problem. You get used to it. It's, uh, we follow guidelines of tape. It's no big deal. I am professional. I have cock that is not soft or shameful. I penetrate you aggressively. It's fine. It's no problem. It's no big deal. Like, again, why, why that sentence? It's no big deal. Later he says, you're going to be kept in a hidden slave room 
Oh, by the way, if you're a new listener, you're like, what the, why Russian? That was, that was Chikatilo. Uh, you're going to be kept in a, a hidden slave room. It is relatively soundproof, escape proof. It is completely stocked with devices and equipment to satisfy our sexual fetishes and deviations. And then later he says, I've been doing this too long. <laughs> I've been raping bitches ever since I was old enough to jerk off and tie little girls hands behind their back. As far as I'm concerned, you're a pretty piece of meat to be used and exploited. I don't give a flying fuck about your mind or how you feel about the situation. You may be married, have a kid or two, boyfriend, girlfriend, a job, car payment. Fuck it. I don't give a rat's ass about any of that, and I don't want to hear about it. This shit was played in court. Think about that. I, I feel like in a perfect world, this is where the trial ends, right? Like they, they everyone agrees, the judge, uh, the prosecutor, even the defendant, they agree that we're going to take a quick vote, show of hands. If the jury all agree that the voice on the tape is the voice of David Parker Ray, the man in court, a dude comes in and just shoots him several times in the dick and lets him bleed out in the middle of court. Uh, then a janitor immediately uh, starts cleaning up. Maybe they let the uh, victims do what they want to his, to his body. Like as he's dying, yeah, you want to shove some shit in his ass? Get in here. Go for it. Maybe a janitor immediately starts cleaning up. You know, someone else, you know, when, when, he's de- when he's dead, throws his body in a dumpster out back and just sets a piece of shit on fire. Uh, later he says... <sighs> Later, he says, your pussy and asshole is going to get a real workout, especially your asshole, because I'm in to animal sex. What? Animal sex? I don't, nah, I don't think that's how they do it, Dave. Uh, animals fuck to keep their species going, and, and you can't do that, despite what I've sung about uh, in my piney song. Uh, you can't actually make a butt baby. Animal sex does not, in fact, uh, involve a butthole, uh, ever, on purpose. Yeah, uh, I don't think if there are some animals out there making some butt babies, I don't know about. Why don't you let me know? But uh, again, they are playing this in court. They're playing that in court while the while the victims and the victims' families are you know like sitting in rows behind him, you know, or up on the stand, I guess, with the victims. Like he's sitting there next to his defense attorney. You know, there's a sonographer, the the bailiff. They're all having to listen to this. If you're the defense attorney, by the way, how do you continue to represent someone like this? Like, like truly, I, I, I truly am curious. Like, how do you justify it in your head? How do you not just, uh, just walk away from the case at that point? Like, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Uh, I need to dismiss myself, uh, dismiss myself. Excuse me, from this case before I take the pen I'm supposed to be using to jot down notes to help this guy uh, get out of jail and just jam it into his fucking eyeball. Uh, he's guilty, everybody. He is super guilty. Uh, later, David says. Also, both of those holes are going to be sub- uh, subjected to a lot of use with some large. Dildos, rather large, actually, rather large dildos, among other things. And it goes without saying that there's going to be a lot of oral sex. On numerous occasions, you're going to be forced to suck cock and eat pussy until your jaw aches and your tongue is sore. You may not like it, but you're fucking sure going to do it. <laughs> he really he really put all this stuff on tape. Later, he says, I've, I've already told you that you're going to be here a month or two, maybe three, if you keep us turned on. If it's up to my lady, we'd keep you indefinitely. She says it's just as much fun and less risky, but personally, I like variety. A fresh pussy now and then to play with. We take four or five different girls each, uh, each year. Four or five girls a year, like eight or what, eight or ten total? And and what girls are you referring to here if this is 1993? Did he have an accomplice before Cindy Hendy? Maybe one he he killed? Well, he he did. He did have uh, at least one accomplice who we're going to talk about, and it's going to make this story even worse than what it already is. Uh, later he reassures the victim that he probably won't kill him. He says, if I killed every bitch we kidnapped, there'd be bodies strung all over the country. And besides, I don't like killing a girl unless it is absolutely necessary. So I devised a safe alternate method of disposal. I had plenty of bitches to practice on over the years. So I pretty well got it down pat and I enjoy doing it. (laughs) 
he he throws it in there, and I enjoy it, and I enjoy it. Uh, he says, "I get off on mind games after we completely after we're completely through with you. You're going to be drugged up real heavy with a combination of sodium pentanol and phenobarbital. They're both hypnotic drugs that will make you extremely susceptible to hypnosis, auto hypnosis, and hypnotic suggestion. You're going to be kept drugged a couple days while I play with your mind." By the time I get through brainwashing you, you're not going to remember a fucking thing about this little adventure. You won't remember this place, us, or what has happened to you. There won't be any DNA evidence because you'll be bathed and both holes between your legs will be thoroughly flushed out. You'll be dressed, sedated, and then turned loose on some country road, bruised, sore all over, but nothing that won't heal up in a week or two. The thought of being brainwashed may not be appealing to you, but we've been doing it a long time and it works. What if he's not bullshitting about this? What if they did kidnap, rape, torture... Then drug up and clean up and brainwash and then dump a whole bunch of – like how many people did he do this to? Like we'll never know. Uh, the victims may never realize it ever happened to him. He also lets them know – that's terrifying. Uh, it's like an urban le- – It's like this is like an urban legend. This plays out like an urban legend, like uh, the kind of shit like uh, you wake up in a fucking bathtub full of ice with your kidneys cut off, cut out. You know uh, that, that one apparently is not supposed to be true, but this shit is true. Uh, he also lets them know that there's no sense in trying to escape from the toy box. You know, you're going to be kept in an environment that is even more secure than a prison cell. If it has not already been done, very shortly a steel collar is going to be padlocked around your neck. It has a long, heavy chain that is padlocked to a ring in the floor. The collar will never be removed until you are turned loose. It is a permanent fixture. The hidden playroom where you're going to be kept has steel walls, floor, and ceiling. It is virtually soundproof and has a steel door with two keyed locks. The hinges are welded on, and there are two heavy deadbolts on the outside. The room is totally escape-proof, even with tools. Anytime that you are left unattended in the room, your wrists will be chained and there are electronic sensors too. Let us know if you move around too much. And if that's not enough, there is a closed-circuit TV system with a surveillance camera. It is wired to the main TV in the living room so we can check on you once in a while or just sit and watch you for the fun of it. Electronics is a wonderful thing. Expensive, but hell, everything in the room is expensive and damn well worth it. If everybody knew how much fun it was to keep a sex slave, half the women would be chained up in somebody's basement. (laughs) Fuck. Uh, he's just so casual. It's like he's trying to kind of like have a sense of humor about it as well. Just, Jesus Christ. Uh, he wasn't bullshitting about the toy box, man. He really did have that thing solidly secured, enhanced with cameras, all that stuff. I've seen the pictures. It's unreal. You know, you wonder how a park ranger could, uh, could afford to put $100,000 into a fuck dungeon, but he did it. He goes on for a long time about how no one's coming to rescue him. No one's, you know, don't bother to ask, let's go. And he talks about how sometimes they're going to be taken out of the toy box and in the living room of the trailer where he's built a special dog fucking contraption. Seriously, Bojangles just growled, by the way. I know I've referenced Bojangles being a bit of a ladies' man, uh, even though he is a dog, but always consensual, always. Praise Bojangles. He is a good boy. Uh, this dog, well, I guess you can't blame the dog. Dog doesn't know what they're doing, but geez, this is this is unbelievable to me. David says, this is part of the tape. This is part of what you hear when you wake up. You'll be taken into the living room and put on the floor on your hands and knees. And again, all this is being played in court, naked. Your wrists, ankles, knees, and hips will be strapped to a metal frame to hold your body in that position. The frame is designed for doggy fucking. Your ass up in the air, sex organs exposed, your tits hanging down on each side of a metal support bar, knees spread about 12 inches, positioned similar to that of a bitch dog in heat, right in the middle of the floor so we can sit on the couch and in chairs and watch. I'm going to rub canine breeder's musk on your back, the back of your neck, and on your sex organs. Now, I have three dogs. All of them's male because I don't need any fucking pups. And, and again, it's like like he thinks they're friends, you know, and these dogs are male. And then he, like, tries to get into, like, small talk. You know, because I don't fucking – look, I don't have time for pups. I got a lot of shit on my plate. Uh, 
supervisor at the park has been riding my ass about overtime lately. And, you know, and I got to fucking buy, I've been trying to order some new fuck dungeon stuff and shipping, you know, has been kind of eating uh, a lot of my profits. And, uh, anyway, yeah, back to the horrible shit I'm going to do to you. He's a fucking maniac. One of them is a very large German shepherd that is always horny. And he loves it when I bring him in the house to fuck a woman. And I let him in the house. You know, after I let him in the house, he'll sniff around you a little bit. And within a minute, he'll be mounting you. There's about a 50-50 chance which hole he'll get his penis into. But it doesn't seem to bother him whether it's the pussy or the asshole. His penis is pretty thin. Goes in easy, but it's about 10 inches long. And when he gets completely excited, he gets a hell of a knot right in the middle of it. Now, I've had slaves tell me that it feels like they got a baseball inside of them. It doesn't take long. He's going to hump you real fast for about three, four minutes. Again, imagine hearing this is what is in store for you. (sighs) He goes on for quite a bit about the dog fucking, like for a long time. He describes how the German shepherd tends to scratch up women's breasts. Describes how it takes a dog about three minutes to get his wean back out of a vagina. About five minutes to get back out of a butt. Says he's timed it. Uh, one of the weirdest possible uses of a stopwatch. He also says that uh, when his girl is not around to watch the dog fucking, he makes sure that the dog sodomizes you. So, you know, he said 50-50 chance earlier, but it sounds like uh, more of like a probably like an 80-20 kind of thing where you're probably getting uh, probably getting the, the, the butt treatment because he says that's more fun for him to watch. And, and all the while this is playing, the defense attorney, again, just sitting there taking notes, whispering back and forth with David. This is playing in court, victims, victims, families, hearing all this shit, so surreal. Later, after repeating a lot of what I've already said to you, uh, he has said about all that stuff, uh, he gives the, the, the sex uh, slave a, a warning about the oral sex. He says, if, if during the oral sex or any other time you should bite one of us, I'm going to have to cut you a little bit. I'll cut your nipple off for a starter, and if it's a bad bite, I'll cut your tit off too. I've been bitten, and I've cut off nipples, so don't fuck around. Then he launches into a long speech about essentially doing what you're told. If, uh, if I tell you to move your legs this way, you do it. Same for the mistress. Then he tells the sex slave that after the first little bit of captivity, things are going to get better. He says, later after the newness wears off, things will kind of settle into something of a routine. We'll only be spending three or four hours each day in the playroom. You're going to have a lot of time to rest, sleep, watch TV or whatever. He's actually saying this. Like, like this is, uh, you know, like he's, he's, he's treating you all right now. If, if you're acting halfway decent, you'll be left in a reasonably comfortable position so you can relax. As far as sex goes, your mistress is going to want a pussy eating a couple times a day. For my part, I like getting off on a slave twice, sometimes three times each day, usually in her mouth or in her asshole. Again, so casual about the most horrific stuff, like, like he's your friend. Look, it's, it's no big deal. You eat the mistress several times a day. You get the aggressive anal throttling a couple times a day. Uh, then you hang out in Foxbox, you eat the mac and cheese, ramen noodles, uh, watch uh, Friends, you can watch Seinfeld. It's no problem. It's no big deal. Unreal. It's unreal how much of a sociopath he is. Like, he's so fucking twisted. How twisted what normal to him has become. Like, he he, he has this tone of like, hey, there's, there's no reason to get dramatic about all this. You know, like, look, look, I get it. It's kind of a bummer being chained up and fucked by strangers and their dogs. But hey, shit happens. And listen. It's going to be over soon. You fucking watch some TV. We'll load you up with drugs. We'll dump you out on the country road, you know, with your butt and your vagina all torn to shit. And then you'll probably kind of heal. And you know what? You fucking, you're fine. Things will go back to fine. Later, he even tries to assure them that, the, that there won't be, they won't be permanently injured. He says, we are into S&M and you're going to, and we're going to hurt you a little. But everything we do to a girl is designed to cause pain, not injury. There is a big difference. No matter how painful it is, nothing we plan to do to your body will cause any serious or permanent damage. Again, it's no big deal. It's just, you know, it's hurt. It's hurt like you die and wake up hell, but uh, in time, but all return to normal. For, for uh, it won't always feel like dog baseball penis inside butt. 
Um, then he says you're going to be whipped lightly for pleasure. The electroshock will be used lightly for pleasure. Most of the other nasty little things we're going to do, for the most part, will be done on your breasts, nipples in between your legs. Mostly what we do to a captive is stick needles in her breasts and through her nipples, through her cunt lips, through her clit. And I'm into stretching certain things. For some reason, that term is one of the most horrific terms of the whole thing to me. Into stretching certain things. I think that's the one, if I hear it, I just start screaming and I lose my mind forever. You know? Oh, my God. Then he continues with the description of sexual torture, saying clamps. You know, with, fuck, he goes on and on. He goes on and on. Un, un, unreal. Uh, God. At one point he says, actually, you know, this, this pretty well covers it. You know, he speaks in moments like he has to do it all. This tone of like, look, I, I wish I was something I could do for you. But uh, this is going to be very painful and unpleasant. But look, I, I, I just work here. I just, I just work at the toy box, you know? Technically, yeah, I'm the owner-proprietor, but uh, the non-business side of me does wish I could let you go. But, uh, you know, it's bad for business. Rules are rules. Finally, the tape ends. It ends with this. He says, basically, I just want to become very familiar with your sex organs and the size of your holes. Fuck. <laughs> All girls are different. During the course of the day, you're going to be raped several times, but that's no big deal. Fuck, I swear to God, he's... Uh, Jesus Christ, that's the word he... The second day, after you get totally familiar with the rules and procedures, we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty. A lot of it will not be very pleasant for you, but you might as well get used to it because it's going to be like that for a while. Eventually, things will settle down a little. Then, just take it day by day. Well, I believe I've told you about everything I can. I cannot predict the future. I cannot predict changes of procedure. But if the tape is being played for you, I have to assume that it is still reasonably accurate. And I can only give you the following advice. Be smart and be a survivor. Don't ever scream. Don't talk without permission. Be very quiet. Be docile and obedient. And by all means, show proper respect. Have a nice day. This motherfucker has the nerve after all of that to end with show proper respect. Have a nice day. I swear, I just, I right now, I wish I could fucking find his accomplice and just use a sledgehammer to smash her fucking skull in. And, and do the same with some other people that we're going to find out were involved. I wish I could bring him back to life. Just to just to fucking put him in a cage like somewhere where people can just like there's a I picture like he's in a cage hanging from a ceiling and there's long sharp sticks that you get to just walk by. Anybody gets one and you just get to grab it and you just poke him wherever you want for as hard as you want. I I don't know that I've ever I thought I I thought I hated Richard Ramirez as much as I could possibly hate someone that I'd never met. I think I think I fucking hate this guy more than I've ever hated anyone. Ah, uh, God, I wish he could die a worse death than he did. So. <sighs> okay, so enough uh, enough horrific crime details. We all get the picture. How was he arrested? Who was he arrested with? Well, uh, David might not have been arrested at all had Cindy Vigil not escaped from that horror show. Three days after being kidnapped and tortured, this is how she escaped. While Ray was at work doing his park rangering, Hendy accidentally leaves the keys to Vigil's uh, restraints on a table near where she's chained. She gets a hold of the keys with the free uh, freezer hands. Before she can free her legs, Hendy finds out what's going on, tries to stop her from escaping, even smashes her over the head with a lamp. But Vigil is determined to escape. She's able to grab a nearby ice pick, you know, one that was undoubtedly used on either her or some other victim in the worst way you can think of. And she jams Hendy in the neck. She's able to stab her in the neck. Uh, She's able to free her legs as Hendy staggers back, and then she runs off naked like we described. And then David Parker Ray is arrested at work and his girlfriend, Cindy Lee uh, Hendy, is apprehended at home that same day, March 22nd, 1999. During questioning, they stick to the same story they must have planned 
uh, you know, for for a case of this happening. They 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 said that the woman they had, this Cynthia, was a heroin addict, and they were just trying to help her detoxify, They're trying to help her detox, and she's thinking a bunch of crazy shit. But then a search of Ray's property reveals the toy box and the sadism one on one orientation tape we just went over, and and it is game over. And it, kind of investigators immediately suspect that along with Ray being a serial rapist, he has to be a serial killer. And, and you would think it would be game over, but not quite. Despite vigil story and evidence, prosecutors and police are worried initially about getting charges to stick because the problem is vigil's credibility. She was an admitted prostitute, and there was no way the, the, to prove that she wasn't there willingly because David and Hendy could claim this was all just a big S&M sex game, which they would. They would switch their story to that. It's all big game. You know, we were embarrassed at first to talk about it, but, uh, you know, a lot of people do this. There's bondage clubs all over. She, she, we thought she was having fun. It's all for, you know, shits and giggles. So could prosecutors prove beyond a reasonable doubt without a body, without any other victims, that this was not consensual, that this was not just a bunch of dark, kinky shit? Luckily, after newspapers run the story about the couple's arrest, another victim comes forward. Angelique Montano, uh, or Montano, uh, told police she'd also been kidnapped, raped, and tortured by Ray and Hendy for three days, held against her will, drugged, and left by a highway out in the desert. She'd been found by police. Uh, she did complain against the couple. She told the police what had happened to her, but they just thought it seemed absurd and that she was making it up. Well, now that she sees the story in the paper, she decides to pursue it, thank God, a second time. Uh, Angelique had moved to Truth or Consequences in 1996 in order to kind of try and turn her life around. Meth had almost killed her in the big city. She figured, uh, you know, maybe a new chance to start all over might be just what she and her infant son, Abel, needed. Wasn't so lucky for five days. Uh, uh, it says in one, one article, three, one day it was five. So, uh, I don't know. Between three and five days, she was tortured in a chamber of horrors by David Ray, Cindy Hendy. The horror began when she decided to bake a cake, according to her, uh, for her boyfriend, Frank Zambrano, uh, who was living with her and her five-year-old uh, son, uh, he was five-year-old at the time, Abel, um, so I guess, you know, she moved when he was a little baby. And then at this time when this happens, he's five. So she said she, says she, had, she knew who Cindy was kind of like through a friend. And, uh, and then Cindy had offered to give her a cake mix packet and some greens for frosting. So she goes over to the white and brown recreational vehicle on their property. David, uh, who she'd never met, was hiding inside. And all of a sudden he pops out, puts a knife to her throat, says she's being abducted. And then, um, you know, takes her to the uh, trailer, takes her to the this fucking toy box, uh, sets her down, tells her to relax. Everything is going to be fine. Uh, but then comes back. David comes back with a knife, slaps her, rips her clothes off. Uh, they put uh, you know the dog collar on, the chains around her ankles. Tell her, "Welcome to your worst nightmare. If you've ever woken up screaming in the night, we're the people you're dreaming about." Fuck. And then they you know begin that sick introduction. Uh, you know uh, they play the tape. They actually also played a, a video that showed it showed their torture room and things they had done to others. Said she was so terrified she could hardly watch, but they were getting a kick out of showing it to her. And then, uh, oh, and then, and then after all that, they leave her. Uh, she says chained to the bed for three days. So again, maybe it was three. Keeps going back and forth in different articles. Uh, David goes to work. Cynthia stays to watch her. On the third day, David tells her, uh, "We're. Uh, I want to show you my toys." So I'm sorry. Uh, it's kind of confusing because he had different rooms of torture, and uh, so sometimes people would be tied up initially in the trailer where they would do certain things to him, and then also they would take her to the toy box. So then he says, "Okay." Sorry, I was a little confused with uh, trying to kind of uh, hodgepodge together various uh, articles, stories about that. There's surprisingly not a lot of detailed information on the web about this guy, despite the heinous crimes he committed. Uh, thank God for this one book I found, um, which uh, is in the PDF of the episode notes on the app, as all the uh, episodes have their their notes. And you can see what book it is. I don't know off the top of my head right now, but it's written in the notes. But anyway, 
Um, he had, you know, the third day. So I think it was five days. It was three days in the trailer. And then the last couple days in the toy box. So he says, we're going to the toy box. I want to show you my toys. And then, uh, he said, she says they took her to a, another trailer where David put her on the table, that gyne- gyne- uh, gynecology table, ties her down hand and foot looking around. She says, I could see things. It looked like medical instruments, pliers, clamps, all the shit we talked about. She said it was like a torture chamber that you see in movies. She said uh, all that stuff paralyzed her with fear. She said that David called his horrible instruments his friends. And then, you know, hell ensued. Just all the stuff we've talked about. And then uh, she is uh, – or I guess – and then, sorry, they're convinced that no one's going to believe her story and that she wouldn't remember enough of it to convince anyone. And then they let her go. And then wearing the same clothes she was wearing five days earlier, she puts out her thumb, tries to hitch a ride back home. She manages to flag down an off-duty sheriff from uh, Los Lunas County. Who, uh, she tells him the whole story, and uh, you know he doesn't he doesn't buy it. She he drives her back to her boyfriend, who doesn't buy it either. Um, they all think she's just making this shit up. It's too insane to be true. All right, so then she's so then now the police have their second person. It's like, yep, they did it to me too. And then thanks to the press coverage, a third person comes forward, a woman named uh, Kelly Von Cleve, a woman from Arizona, called the FBI, and actually somebody comes to the FBI on this woman's behalf. And you'll see what happens here. A woman from Arizona calls the FBI right after she sees David Ray on TV, reports that her daughter-in-law, technically former daughter-in-law, had disappeared for three nights and days back in 1996. Janet Murphy told the FBI the following story about a 22-year-old girl with a swan tattoo on her ankle, and that's uh, Kelly Von Cleve. The FBI had already confiscated one of David's videotapes with a variety of women being tortured on them, and one was of a woman being sexually tortured who had this tattoo. Who had this tattoo of the swan on her ankle? They were actually uh, that's how they were able to corroborate her story. Is there was videos of her being tortured? They found later, and here's what her story is. She says, uh, "In July of 1996, and this is the uh, former mother-in-law. In July of 1996, my 22-year-old, no, excuse me, my 20-year-old son Patrick married a young girl from Truth or Consequences he'd only known for six weeks. He was in the Navy in San Diego and home on leave when he met her. It was kind of a quick thing when they got married. I wanted him to take it a little bit slower." I just figured she latched on to Patrick because she wanted some financial security. Right after they got married, they were staying at my house, and he was catering to her all the time. I guess they were having sexual problems, just like a lot of newlywed couples do. They fought one night, and the next morning, Kelly came to me and said, Mom, I'm going to go see some friends. I'll be back later. She didn't come back for three days. I was really upset, and so was Patrick. He reported her missing, and he looked for her night and day. He was really worried that she was hanging out with some really bad people. By the end of the second day, we talked, and he decided to divorce her. We thought she just up and left him and was out fooling around with her friends. On the third morning, we were out doing yard work when the state vehicle pulls up. David Parker Ray was behind the wheel. The balls on this guy. The guy who does it drops her off back home. Kelly gets out of the truck, and right away I noticed that she looked all messed up, dirty. And that wasn't like Kelly at all. She was a very clean person. It looked like she had a hangover, but I knew for a fact she hardly ever drank. She didn't do drugs either. Her eyes were wandering. She was barefoot and missing her wedding ring. Her hair was all messed up. She came over and sat on the porch. I tried to talk with her, and she said mostly she couldn't remember. Mr. Ray told us he had found her wandering on the beach down at Hot Springs Cove, and then he smiled and said, I thought I'd better bring her home. She was dehydrated, and we stopped at Earl's Diamond Gas Station, and I bought her a cup of coffee, Uh, which is actually uh, not what you do if someone's dehydrated, you fucking weirdo. Uh, My son came walking out of the house and told Kelly he wanted a divorce, and we told her she couldn't come in the house unless she signed the divorce papers. Wow, okay. She left with David Ray, my God, and then came back uh, two days later and got all her belongings. 
Patrick divorced her at the end of July, and he didn't see Kelly until the following April when the two kids talked about the possibility of getting married one more time. She moved in to stay with me for a few days. He didn't trust her, and neither did I. After a few days, I asked her to leave my house, and I didn't think about her too much until I saw all the TV news about David Ray kidnapping and torturing those two other girls. I feel so darn guilty, she told the FBI, sobbing uncontrollably. I didn't believe her, and now I think that David had her all three of those nights. I don't know what he did to her memory, but I think he probably did some wicked things to her body. My son and Kelly Van Cleve had only been married two weeks. So I wonder, the way this is all put together, if when she went back with this guy, that's when he took her back to the toy box spots, like with her fucking memory all fucked up. Anyway, that motherfucker, not only did he sexually torture some girl for three days, three to five days, he destroyed her new marriage. Clearly, his memory cocktail worked. He really did figure out how to kidnap girls, torture them, and just release them back into society. It made me wonder, I had the weirdest thought. I wonder if like some, like a few of those alien abduction anal probe stories, you know, which arguably are, you know, probably more popular around Roswell, New Mexico. You know, stories of, uh, you know, people having a vague recollection of uh, being taken hostage, molested, anal probed. I wonder if a few of those stories were actually David Parker Ray. Like, like honestly, what the fuck? When, when the FBI contacted Kelly, she confided she'd been plagued by nightmares for years. She told investigators some shit that would lead to more arrests and, and make the story even more insane than it already is when, uh, you know, and, and she didn't even realize until the investigators contacted her, she still didn't know she had been one of this guy's victims because her head was so messed up. And then they're able to match her tattoo to the picture, and then it all kind of comes back to her when she sees herself. I mean, ugh, it's just so horrible. And check, check this story out. She said she was friends with a local man. This is Kelly. Said she was friends with a local man named Roy Yancey and that Roy knew David Parker Ray well. She said Roy had told her he'd been in a satanic group for years. David was the leader. Uh, said that Roy was as scary as hell. Uh, she'd seen Roy beat several people up over the years, a dude who told her on multiple occasions he could kill someone and not blink an eye, and this dude was scared of David Parker Ray. Kelly also said that uh, she knew David's daughter, good old Glenda Ray. Poor Glenda Ray. She never had a chance, right? Her story is so fucked up. Prostitute uh, for a mom and one of the most evil pieces of shit I've ever read about for a dad. Uh, I told you she would come back into this tale in the most horrific of ways, and here she is. Uh, Kelly said that, that Glenda went by the name of Jesse and that Jesse was Elephant Butte and Truth or Consequences, one of uh, the area's main drug dealers. And, uh, and here's what Kelly said about how she was kidnapped, which gives us already so dark suck and even darker twist. She said, I knew a lot of people in Truth or Consequences who got their drugs from Jesse. She was a major league drug runner, coke, meth, grass, the whole bag. The night I got in trouble was July 25th, 1996. It was hotter than hell. So I went out bar hopping with a bunch of my friends and we ended up at the Blue Water Saloon. They drank all day, but I only had one beer. I was a designated driver. Later that night, Jesse said she'd take me home. She drives a big motorcycle, and she's always letting people hitch a ride with her. She said she wanted to drink some coffee first, so we got on her big old motorcycle, and instead of taking me home, she drove me over to her dad's trailer. Inside, I sat down on the couch while Jesse and her dad uh, went into the back room. When they came out, one sat beside me, and the other knelt at my feet. I can't remember which one did what, but what I do remember is that one held a knife to my throat and the other used duct tape to cover my eyes and my mouth. At first, I thought they were playing a joke on me. When I realized they were serious, I guess I kind of froze up and I went along with them because I didn't want them to hurt me. They took off my clothes and put a dog collar around my neck. Then they took me out, of the to uh, out to the toy box. I still don't remember too much. I just remember being tied up. And I remember David poking me with the metal dildo right between the legs. And then she proceeds to talk about a bunch of other horrible shit we've already covered, being done to her. Then a few days later, she says that David told me that his satanic group had been watching me for a long time because they wanted me as a sex slave. But he finally decided I was too tight between the legs for good sex, and eventually he let me go. 
fuck, man, how how extra dark is that twist? The daughter is involved. My God, David David met Cindy Hendy. You know the accomplice we already talked about, nineteen ninety seven. You know, so the woman helping him prior to 1997 was his fucking daughter, at least for a while, his own daughter, helping her father kidnap these women for sexual torture. And it gets even darker than that. Jesse is the mother of a daughter, Kayla, seven years old at the time of her subsequent arrest for her involvement of all this 1999, a girl growing up in Louisiana and lived with her granny at that time. And according to longstanding rumors in town, Kayla was fathered by David Parker Ray shortly after Jesse moved up from Texas in 1992 to live with them. The kid is his, states ex-druggie Gail Atsbury, Jesse's pal. That's the reason Jesse's so sick all the time. It was a well-known fact that Jesse had serious ulcer problems ever since she moved to Truth or Consequences when she was 24. Twice she had to be airlifted out of town to get treatment. She's fucking terrified and stressed. Stomach's eating, eating her alive because of, oh my God, she probably had a baby with her dad. She's fucking helping you know these women be raped and most likely some of them killed. And I 100% believe that story. He, I, I believe he probably put his daughter in the toy box. Nothing was off limits for this son of a bitch. Nothing was sacred. I feel like if Richard the Night Stalker Ramirez was around and read this story, even he might be like, God damn, that shit is fucked up. Like when he made it to the incest part of the tale. Even more sad note to her story, Jesse, according to an FBI agent named Doug Meldon, tried to, there's a little deep dive here to find this one, tried to warn the FBI what her dad was up to way back in 1986 when she was just 19, long before she became a drug dealer, long before she possibly got pregnant by her father, uh, before her dad possibly raped and tortured her. God knows what happened to her. Back in 86, she alleged that David Parker Ray was abducting and torturing women and selling them to buyers in Mexico. Unfortunately, the allegations were so nonspecific and just so over the top and outlandish that they didn't act on the claims. They didn't look into him hard enough. So maybe he was doing that. And what about this Roy Yancey character I mentioned earlier, right? This local Satanist. How is he involved in all this? Well, when Cindy Hendy, you know, the, the Clyde the, or the body to his Clyde is arrest, apprehended, she immediately strikes a plea deal with prosecutors. She agrees to testify against David Parker Ray and everyone else involved, which includes Jesse and includes Roy Yancey. She said that David told her he'd already killed 14 people before they met, but he didn't provide names and she didn't know where the bodies were. And she said that Yancey was a hardcore satanic follower of David Ray's. And during one lengthy interview, she said that Yancey killed a woman he was dating named Marie Parker back in 1997 under instructions from David Ray. Roy strangled her to death while David sat nearby and took photographs. And now Marie's body not been found, but Yancey was brought in for questioning and eventually admitted to being present when Ray and his daughter Jesse kidnapped Parker and took her to the toy box. And then he said that uh, she was tortured there for three days. He admitted that Ray and, and, and Jesse told Yancey uh, – or, you know, or instructed him to kill her, which he did by strangling her with the rope. Uh, Yancey said Ray threatened to kill him if he told anyone about it. Ugh. Yancey was known around town as just kind of a local punk. He'd been arrested for burglary, petty other criminal charges. Uh, he was known to locals as Dennis. Uh, and he was known to be in a satanic cult with a small group of friends who had terrorized the community in some fashion for over a decade. Turning over gravestones, mostly like little like uh, prank shit. Turning over gravestones, spray painting with satanic graffiti. Uh, they had killed some local pets. They threatened to kill some small children. Scared the town enough that in 1987, city officials and truth or consequences actually officially canceled Halloween festivities in the town. Parents locked their doors, kept their kids at home, fearing for their lives. Uh, the local paper, The Sentinel, which doesn't seem to exist anymore, went so far as to hire an undercover reporter to infiltrate the satanic gang and report on their evil ways. 
And the reporter they sent to infiltrate apparently got sucked into the group and became a member and refused to expose his new friends. This fucking shit just keeps getting weirder and weirder and weirder. One of those friends he refused to expose, Dennis Yancey. This story's insane. Uh, dude has a fucking $100,000 sex torture shed. He's possibly got his own daughter pregnant. He definitely convinced his daughter to help him kidnap women for satanic sexual torture and raping. He convinced at least one other woman to help him. He convinced at least one other dude to help him. It's thought that uh, all of his accomplices and possibly others were involved in the raping and torture. Who knows how many others there, there might have been. Uh, you know, and then apparently he led a group of Satanists in rape, torture, and abduction. And then finally gets caught and convicted, thank God. In the end, uh, end, Cindy Hendy would be sentenced to 36 years in prison as agreed to in her plea bargain. She testified against Ray during his, uh, his trials. She's currently up for parole, could be released this year, though. How fucked up is that? Dennis Roy Yancey, or I guess Roy Dennis Yancey, received two 15-year sentences for second-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. He was released after serving 11 years but returned to custody until 2021 after violating his parole. So he could, if he didn't mess up his parole, he could be out now. Jesse Ray was found guilty of uh, kidnapping women for sexual torture, was sentenced to nine years in prison, six of which would be served out of prison and on parole. Uh, She's a free woman walking the streets of Albuquerque, New Mexico today. Uh, My dad was always innocent, she will tell anyone who will listen, apparently. David Parker Ray, uh, the toy box killer, probable uh, serial killer, uh, serial rapist, Satanist, probable uh, daughter impregnator, Agreed to a plea deal, sentenced to 224 years for all kinds of sexual torture, rape, and kidnapping charges. Uh, Again, the toy box killer was actually never charged with murder. And then on May 28, 2002, uh, he dies. He was sitting in his jail cell at the correctional facility in Dobbs, New Mexico. His heart stopped, and uh, he was 62 years old. Supposedly, he had just agreed to talk to investigators about some uh, missing bodies, some other crimes he was involved in. Investigators who worked his case were convinced that he did kill a lot of the women that they'd watched him torture on those tapes. Unfortunately, he just didn't write their names down in his various journals and diaries, uh, and they just couldn't release the footage publicly due to its extremely graphic sexual nature. There were uh, various uh, women seen with Jesse or Cindy or David, uh, you know, or Yancey. Shortly before they uh, disappeared, David bragged to Cindy he'd killed 30 to 40 women. I mean, did he? Did he kill more than that? Not No one at all? I mean, we'll never fully know. There was a boss he had in Texas that he bragged about killing, a man named Billy Ray Bowers, a man who suddenly disappeared in 1998 when David was working for him. The body showed up a year later. The unidentified body had been wrapped in a blue tarp, uh, roped to two heavy boat anchors, weighing 11 pounds apiece, tossed into Elephant uh, Butte Lake. He had a single bullet hole in his head. For 10 years, the body remained unidentified. It wasn't until Cindy Hendy told police that David Ray had told her he killed Billy Ray Bowers that authorities checked dental records, and in fact, the body was his. Uh, There just wasn't enough evidence for prosecutors to press murder charges. There wasn't uh, enough forensic evidence to tie David to that case. And with the women, they just never found any of the bodies. Never found any of the bodies of various women who disappeared in New Mexico who were somehow connected to David Parker Ray. If he did kill these women, where did they go? Well, after watching television coverage in 2001 about the renewed search for the bodies of David Parker Ray's victims, a man unexpectedly came forward with information regarding uh, what might have happened, what I think probably did happen. The man who asked not to be identified in the media told the authorities that he had delivered load after load of concrete to David Parker Ray over a six-year period in the mid to late 90s. The concrete was ordered by Ray and had been delivered to Elephant Butte Lake State Park, where Ray worked. The man said that he had taken the loads of concrete to an area above the park where concrete and cement block walls surrounded an empty lot. 
Ray would use the concrete to fill up large truck tires. The man said these tires were definitely large enough to have held a body, he reported. Ray never allowed the man to get out of the cement truck or let him see inside the tires, the man told law enforcement. And, and no one else was ever present when the concrete was delivered. When this tipster asked Ray what the tires were going to be used for after they were filled with cement, Ray told him they were going to be used at the park to anchor down the marina. An FBI agent named Frank Fisher said the agency was very interested in the man's tip, saying that something was definitely suspicious because Ray did not let the man get out of his truck, walk around and look at the area. Fisher said Ray uh, was believed to have used several different methods to dispose of bodies, uh, encasing bodies in concrete at the bottom of the lake was a definite possibility of being one of the methods. Even in his own writings, he would suggest ways to dispose of bodies, Fisher said, adding that Ray had also mentioned putting bodies in areas where roads were scheduled to be paved. So uh, are there numerous former torture victims of David Parker Ray encased in concrete at the bottom of Elephant Butte Reservoir? Or did he dump those tires somewhere else? Investigators have never found them. Are they paved under some highway, you know, out in New Mexico somewhere? I don't know, man. I don't know, and I'm not sure. I hope they find them. You know, I mean, as a family member, you would want some closure on your loved one's disappearance, but would you really want that closure to be knowing that in the end they met David Parker Ray? That son of a bitch and his little fucking cult got a hold of him, tortured him for days on end in the worst sexual ways a manager, and then just dumped their, their dead body in some unmarked grave? Would you... Would you want to know that their lives ended in a living hell? I don't think so. And if Cindy Hendy, Roy Dennis Yancey, or Glenda Jesse Ray, you know, if they know, they're not going to tell. They're not going to incriminate themselves. How fucking insane was this story, man? Built a sex torture trailer. Uh, if you have the stomach, you can do a Google image search for the Toy Box Killer Toy Box. And it is something out of one of the Saw movies. Something out of like an Eli Roth hostile movie. Just fucking torture porn. What What's the value in knowing any of this? I... I don't know. Uh, I was fascinated reading this stuff. It just, it's just so unbelievably morbid. I guess just it's just a reminder that we don't know the people around us. Be careful out there. It's, it's a reminder, too, that just because a story seems impossibly outrageous, that doesn't mean it's actually not true. And I think it's a, it's a fucking wake up for certain sexual fetishes. You know, they can be taken way too far. Sexuality without morality is no bueno. If you have some kind of torture porn fetish, might not be a bad idea to run those fantasies by a licensed therapist. You know, make sure they're just fantasies and not plans. Make sure they're just things you can't help being turned on by, you know, thinking about, but not things you actually may do someday. I think it's fun to peek into the darkness uh, out of morbid curiosity, but man, don't jump into the darkness with both feet. Build a fucking home there like David Parker Ray did. Whew, this was disturbing, man. Time for one last look at the most disturbing uh, suck for me that we've done so far. One last look at the Toy Box Killer with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, David Parker Ray, the Toy Box Killer, was never actually convicted for a single murder. In addition to being a ruthlessly sadistic piece of shit, he was also extremely cunning. Number two, David had his daughter, Jessie Ray, kidnap women and bring them to his torture room so he could rape them for days, and he may be the father of Jessie's daughter, Kayla. Number three, David Parker Ray spent $100,000 building his toy box that included high-quality cameras for recording his sadistic sessions and a gynecologist chair hooked up with electric shock equipment. Who does that? David Parker Ray did that. Number four, this piece of shit made an orientation tape describing in excruciating detail the horrors that awaited a new victim. Horrors that included being raped by a German shepherd, having your breast nearly ripped off. Then he figured out how to drug victims so that they wouldn't remember enough of what happened to them to be able to turn him in to the police. And then number five, new info. 
This is after everything we said. This was like Jesus Christ, man. Uh, the crimes of David Parker Ray. So beyond fucked up. The images in the toy box so dark. The videos so unbearable to watch that one of the first FBI agents working the case who was helping document the horrors of the toy box killer killed herself at work five days after first examining the sadistic fuck dungeon he'd created. Agent Patty Rust, after spending five days in the trailer Ray created, suddenly became visibly upset, walked outside, took out her service revolver, and shot herself in the head. One last victim of the toy box killer. I've read about a lot of crimes, and this is the first time I have ever read about a crime so horrific that examining the crime led directly to one of the investigating officers killing themselves because it was just too much. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Wow. We did it. We made it through that one, time suckers. I, uh, I thought this suck would be dark, but I had no idea what kind of rabbit hole I was going down when I started this one. And to be honest, I couldn't stop staring at the train wreck that was David Parker Ray this last few days. It's the only episode so far where I texted Lindsay in the midst of research to tell her I might throw up. Took several breaks to go outside, uh, just get away from it for a little bit. But I also couldn't stop thinking about it. It just kept haunting me. How can, how can you dedicate your life to that much pain, that much misery? How can someone be so cruel to someone and then get others to go along with it on top of that? You know, how involved were Jesse, Cindy, Hendy, and Yancey? Were there other local Satanists who also got in, the, in on the action? I think, I bet there was. I bet other people were involved, right? The, the instructions he had for everything, that wasn't just for him. And, and yes, by the way, quick asterisk, I do know that there are some uh, self-proclaimed Satanists who find all this disgusting. I know some of them uh, are time suckers. I know some Satanists do not believe in the Christian version of the devil and have a completely different take on Satanism and get upset when it's you know used to describe somebody this way. But the fact is that's how he defined himself. Uh, you know, David Parker Ray, he did consider himself to be satanic. Uh, he did consider himself to be worshiping the devil in his way. He worshiped evil clearly. And you know what? Right now, I hope hell is real. I hope the, I hope there is a hell so I can just, you know, picture him burning down there, getting fucked by numerous dogs. You know, maybe he's down there in Nimrod's butthole and uh, Bojangles is just tearing his ass apart. Ah, well, big thanks to the Time Suck team, Harmony Camp, master of memes, Time Suck's Instagram, uh, other social media outlets, editor Jesse Dobner, you know, uh, thanks to him, the Reverend Doctor. Joe Paisley, still need to give uh, Joe, I know, proper deduction. We will, we will, we'll still get there. Thanks to Alex Dugan, the Bitelixer team, Danger Brain, Eric Radiker, Queen of the Suck, Lindsey Cummins. I know there was not a lot of humor in this one. I know we've talked about things that are in their way for sure, like, uh, oh, like that, that was the one I'm blanking on. God dang it, right now, the um, the Japanese torture that, uh, oh, I want to say Agency 71, and anyway, I know we have talked about things that are uh, worse, but for, for whatever reason, and, and farther scope of what's happened in humanity, but man, this one, whew, this one was the worst one, I think, for me. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Alex Dugan there, kind of, I sound, I sound fucking off because I'd feel off after going through that. Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. Uh, if you want to meet some fellow uh, time suckers, if you need a fucking support group after going through that nightmare... Uh, there'll be a link in today's episode description for the Time Suck private Facebook group. Monday, we go uh, a little less dark, maybe, kind of. We, uh, we tackle the space lizard voted in topic of the Pennhurst State School and Hospital, uh, known also as the Pennhurst Asylum, except it never really was an asylum. Very common misconception. It, did not, uh, it was not designed, uh, intended to house the, the mentally ill. 
It was a house of horrors for many of its patients. Patients deemed undesirable, unwanted by society. Patients often unable to protect themselves from life at Penhurst. Uh, so I guess we, we kind of go from one, one toy box to another a little bit. Damn it. Damn it. At least most of the people working at Penhurst were actually trying to help the people confined there, I think. Back in the mid-1960s, actually 1968, so I guess late 60s, uh, fledgling TV reporter Bill Baldini ran a five-episode expose of Penhurst State School and Hospital on Philadelphia's TV 10. Painted a picture of neglect and abuse in the Chester County Institution that was hard for regular viewers to stomach. Hard for the staff to stomach. Uh, on, the, on, the, on the flickering monochrome television at the time came images of full-grown you know, uh, uh, bodies strapped to adult-sized crib beds. Inmates of the institution shown to be rocking, pacing, and twitching. Many severely disabled, either mentally or physically. But others quite lucid and coherent, but withdrawn into themselves because of the overstimulation of the senses in the loud and frightening place. They, uh, they, they lacked, you know, much needed mental stimulation. The five-minute uh, news segments were entitled Suffer the Little Children. When one patient was asked by the interviewer what he would like most in the world, if he could have anything he wanted, he just said to get out of Penhurst. And in 1983, nine employees were indicted on charges ranging from slapping and beating patients all kinds of horrible stuff. Class action lawsuit shut the place down when federal court determined that the conditions at Penhurst were unsanitary, inhumane, and dangerous, violating the 14th Amendment, and that Penhurst used cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the 8th and 14th Amendments. But really what Penhurst did more than anything was uh, make society, uh, you know, U.S. society, look at itself in, in regards to its treatment of the intellectually disabled. And we're, uh, and we're still looking at ourselves uh, as far as the treatment of this population, still trying to figure out how to uh to to do a do a lot better job of taking care of that population. We're going to we're going to look into all of this uh on Monday. And now we're going to suck on you and your time sucker updates. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. Starting off with an adorable pet update from super sucker Ashley uh Heiner. She writes, "Hi Dan, and thank God for sending this in. Ashley, this is a nice Cute one and a, and a great palate cleanser for what we've just done. Hi, Dan. We need you to settle uh, a battle once and for all. We're looking to get a new dog, which we have already decided will be named Chikatilo. I think he needs to be good with kids and a breed that I assume has a soft shamecock. A large male poodle is what comes to mind. My husband thinks he needs to be more of the strong wrestling type, like a pit bull. Praise Jangles. Uh, since neither of us are willing to budge, we figured we should settle this like adults and have the suck master decide. All kidding aside, we are huge fans and believe the couple... The couple that sucks together stays together. I love it. As parents to three little ones, we don't get out much, but we recently saw you in Tempe, Arizona, and really enjoyed the show. My husband was the soulless ginger who tried to remain in character while asking if he wanted to wrestle in his best Chikatilo accent. I love that you describe him as soulless ginger. Uh, Lastly, we are uh, getting ready to celebrate our five-year wedding anniversary this September. If time permits, can you give a shout-out to Big Red Monkey? His parents didn't hate him that much when they saw he was a ginger. His real name is uh, Jeremy. Uh, Big Red Monkey is just a loving name uh, his army friends gave him while deployed. Thank you, Ashley Heiner. And I, I love you guys can't see it, but Ashley, and, and she put phonetic spellings next to all of her names and then a little like uh, emoji of a, of a winking little happy person. And she even uh, phonetically, <laughs> phonetically spelled out Jeremy. Jeremy. Uh, well, thank you, Ashley, and thank you, Jeremy, for your service, you disgusting, soulless ginger fuck. Uh, thank God you're not also Polish like my wife. Whew. Man, Polish redheads are proof that God hates some humans. No, I uh, I think I read about that in a study somewhere I made up. Anyway, the dog, uh, well, 
I am partial to Australian Labradoodles since that's what I have. However, they are hard to find at rescue centers. Uh, if you have allergies, uh, any doodles are good. Large poodles are exceptionally smart dogs. Pit bulls do look pretty badass. They can be very sweet. Uh, praise Bojangles. While, while not an official breed of any kind, there are poodle pit bull mixes out there. Uh, I looked them up. They're pretty fucking cute. So maybe start there. Then they can both get what you want. I mean, they, truly, they're pretty cute. Uh, if you can't find a poodle pit bull mix, I, I say go pit bull if you're going to go through a rescue. I say go poodle if you're going to go through a breeder. Is that is that fair? Does that help at all? There's the Springer Clan Standard Poodles, a breeder with the good, uh, good-looking big poodles in Phoenix. Several rescues uh, in the Phoenix area. Uh, and, and, and if you really, though, insist on me helping with the decision, well, I did flip a coin. Seriously. I, uh, I swear to Nimrod. I got one of the military challenge coins uh, time suckers have sent in. I decided that, that, a, that a pit bull would be heads and that the poodle would be tails. I flipped it, and it came up heads. So Nimrod wants a pit bull. So uh, praise Bojangles. Hail Nimrod. And it is hilarious that you're naming it Chikatilo. All right. Funny Donner Party slash Spread the Suck update from a Midwest sucker, uh, Laura. Laura writes in saying, good morning, Master Sucker. I wanted to share with you my experience of spreading the suck. I, I, I went to work at Runza a little early last Friday morning. It's truck day, so I had many things that needed done before the truck got there. Since all of our food is made fresh every day, shameless plug I know, I started in on our hamburger. Our hamburger is fresh, and each day we use an ice cream scoop to ball it up and make four-ounce balls of meat. Being alone in the store, I turn on the suck. I'm happily making hamburger. The Donner Party suck is blaring in the background. The door opens, and my one of my truck drivers saunters in. What he sees and hears stops him in his tracks. Here is a 95-pound woman covered in bloody meat listening to your... <laughs> Listening to your booming voice saying, cutting the meat off human bones, rusting over a campfire later. Or was anyone so hungry they just ate it raw? How chewy would that be? His wide-eyed stare said it all. I quickly turned off the podcast. He stuttered, hello? And carefully handed me my packing slip and hurried out the door back to the safety of his truck. As he brought more, uh, as he brought the first load of food in for the freezer, he said, this is your chicken. Chicken is what most people eat. I just about died laughing. I told him all about the suck, what it was, what it was about, how much I loved it, and that this was actually uh, an episode about the Donner Party. I did, however, inform, inform him that I do butcher my own animals, and if he kept up his smart-ass attitude, he might just be next. I do have to add that I live on the Platte River near the Oregon Trail, and I had no idea that so many people died of cholera. McGill's pop! Watch your butthole. Uh, I learned something new today. I guess I should stop drinking the river water, LOL. Thanks always for a good laugh. I try to spread the suck whenever possible. Hope you have a great week, Laura. Well, thank you, Laura. You're the best. Uh, thanks for spreading the suck. I'm having a good week. Too funny. And I love Runza, by the way. I know Runza. Uh, I've eaten me some Nebraska Runza many times. I, I actually uh, made a movie in Nebraska. I have a hard time not thinking it's terrible. I feel a little guilty saying that because uh, there could be some of the people who made it listening. <laughs> I had a great time making it, but the end product, I, I can't finish watching it. it uh, maybe that's just me. Maybe it's my own being hard on myself. It's called Trunked. It's on Amazon Video. If you want to watch it, I, I don't recommend it, but if you want to, you can. Uh, I, I wish I could confidently plug it. It was filmed in Wahoo, Nebraska, where I spent a few weeks, and Wahoo has Runza and not much else, and I ate some of those stuffed sandwiches. I bet that's what you're balling up those four ounces of meat for. Delicious. If you never had a Runza, it's, uh, it's like a fucking fancy Hot Pocket. It's uh, ground beef and cheese, some kind of sauce baked inside the bread, fresh, you know, like Laura said. It's ex- ex- exactly, though, it is the kind of thing that you would want uh, to serve human meat in. If you're going to have to eat human meat, a Runza Hot Pocket wouldn't be a bad way to go. Uh, fun Ma Barker-ish update coming in from Charles Leach says, uh, Hey, Dan, you have young time sucker here who is calling in with an update. I have been a fan of both your comedy and podcast for a couple of years now, have been meaning to write in, 
In the Ma Barker episode, you talked about how Herman Barker rode into a saloon on his horse. When I heard uh, this, I laughed my ass off because the exact same shit happened in my marginally small town of Steamboat Springs. A couple years ago, some drunk cowboy rode down Main Street on his horse, past cars and buses, and into a bar where he tried to order some whiskey. I thought you would like to know that some of that old-timey crazy shit still happens today. On a side note, you're coming to Denver on August 23rd to the 26th. I would love to come, but I'm not yet 21. I was wondering if you could do anything. I know this is a big request. Totally understand if it doesn't work out. Anyways, thanks for doing what you do. This podcast helps me get to work and many other things. Thanks. I bow at your feet. Mighty suck, Lord. Master Esquire. And he says, Charles. Well, thank you, Charles. Uh, I wish I could help you with the age requirement. Unfortunately, it's all about liquor laws at certain venues. So they get fined if someone under the age of 21 gets in, they get caught. All I can do is uh, jokingly, not jokingly, recommend that you get a fake ID and get there. I wish I could do more. I do. I wish I uh, could uh, perform at venues that do not have age restrictions. I would like to do that eventually. If you guys keep spreading the suck like you're doing and it keeps going like it's going, hopefully in a, in a, in a year or so I, I can get a big enough crowd to show up to places consistently that I can start picking venues and then I do want to pick all age venues. Because you know what? If you want to fucking bring your 15-year-old to hear my fucking filth mouth, I'm all for it. Uh, love that a dude rode a horse into a bar. I wonder if they sued him for tearing the shit out of the floor. Or I don't know. Maybe he didn't tear it up. And, uh, and we will leave on a random Rasputin update today. Uh, this comes in from Time Sucker Charles Gaines. <laughs> uh, actually, Chris. Chris uh, wait, says, Chris, okay, Chris. Your email says Charles. Chris says, uh, Dear Suckmaster Cummins, I am working on listening to all the past shows of Time Suck. And uh, I recently just finished the Ma Barker Gang episode. You mentioned the Rasputin song uh, that you initially talked about and played during the Rasputin Suck, that Boney M song. Yep. My second job is at a trivia uh, is as is is as a trivia karaoke host, and I was working on a new trivia show when I ran into an Otomaton cover of Rasputin. I think that's how you say it. Uh, Otomaton, I think it's uh, just had to share. I hope it brings you joy, as your podcast has been amazing for me. Uh, here is the song, and by the way, an Otomaton is a, is a Japanese toy synthesizer shaped like an eighth note. I'd never heard of it until today. And uh, and he says, "Thanks, Chris Gaines." Well, thank you, Chris. And uh, and I think we should play this for you today. It's definitely uh, – it, it puts a smile on your face. And after all the dark shit we've walked down today, this is a great way, I feel like, to end the show, to end with an uh, automaton version of Boney M's uh, Rasputin. that one ah that was a great palate cleanser let's get out of these uh time suckers thanks time suckers i needed that we all did thanks for listening to this bonus suck uh thank you again chris for the uh weird weird rah rah rasputin uh automaton 
fucking musical cover thing. That was amazing. Uh, have a great rest of your weekend. Please, for the love of Nimrod, do not ever, ever make a fuck dungeon. Anything even remotely like the toy box. Don't kidnap anyone. Don't let animals uh, sodomize people. It's, uh, it's, it's super not cool. Uh, what is cool, was very cool, is to keep on sucking. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.